I'm Jesse. And I'm Josh. And this is Slice by Slice, a podcast where we dissect and discuss horror films by categories and subgenres, such as slashers, dream demons, franchises, and directors' bodies of work. And of course, we can't dissect and discuss these films in the detail we do without spoilers. Man, it feels like an eternity since we last recorded. No, this is just us getting back on schedule. <laughs> is that what we're going to call it? That's exactly what we're going to call it. I had a lot of shit happen since the last episode to kind of mess my perspective of time. There was a uh, little minor ER trip in there, but everything's okay. <laughs> and I turned 38 in there. So I had some birthday festivities. That really could, you know, make it feel like it's been a while. And well, yeah, and we're recording late as shit right now. <laughs> but it's at least early in the day. We haven't recorded this early in the day and for fucking ever. You're right. It's not just a little late, though. Like we're recording six or seven days late. Yeah, yeah. So this is episode 48, a Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, part one. And we're recording it on September the 6th, 2020. And it will probably not be up until the end of the week. Hell, it might even be Friday the 11th before we get it out, but we'll be back on Friday releases, right? Yeah, yeah, see, schedule. Speaking of schedule, I really hope this doesn't mess up our Halloween plans, but fuck it, we'll just make it work. Yeah, yeah, I have the faith. We have the power. If we're in the middle of a series, we'll just stick a Halloween episode in the middle and not care. Yeah, yeah. It's just like I'm last sure year. Somebody, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure somebody has done that before. Technically, last year was a bonus episode, though. It was not a counted episode. This year, I'm planning on it actually being episode blah, blah, blah. Ah. But let's jump into the news so we can get into the films. So John Wick director Chad Stahlski is expressing interest in directing the Marvel reboot of Blade. Oh. So if we're going to get an action guy to make a horror movie again, I don't know his horror, you know, credentials here, but he can make an action movie. Yeah, yeah. And that was definitely more action than horror, so. Fede Alvarez's Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot that he's producing is off to a rocky start because his director quit one week into production due to creative differences. And they're already talking to a new director and they're going to scrap everything the original director did. Oh, nice. This is how production hell stories get into their, what, the third chapter? <laughs> This movie probably won't come out. Exactly. <laughs> I will say, though, if somebody's going to redo an old slasher movie or any old horror movie, I got faith in Fatty just because of Evil Dead. So yeah. I kind of feel like if the guy, I can't think of the guy's name, I'm sorry, but if he was having creative differences with Fatty, I feel like Fatty was probably <laughs> the one making the better decision right then. Yes, yes, we, we would agree with him. Speaking of remaking slasher movies... Apparently, Screen Gems is rebooting Urban Legend, and they've started the casting process. We don't need that. <laughs> Probably not, but I'll go see it anyways. <laughs> Same. And, and the last little bit of news I got, unless you have anything you want to add, Josh, is the boys star Jack Quaid has joined the cast of the Scream movie, of Scream 5. Huh. Do you feel like he's the killer already, though? Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Like there was, uh, I don't remember if it was episode two or episode three of the boys season two. There's one episode where he was just like fucking angry and like just looked homicidal. And I'm like, he could be a serial killer. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. I guess we can go ahead and jump into the what we watched because we just started that basically right there. So what we watched, I actually have a pretty decent list for once and not just because it's been three weeks since we did this. <laughs> I had a semi-active weekend. So I turned 38 at the end of August. And, you know, there's a pandemic going around. I don't know if anyone's heard. So I couldn't really do anything. But I already 
work with my buddy David. So we're already exposed to each other regularly in the office for the most part. So we decided to go uh, do a do an old horror movie night and drink a bunch of atomic pumpkin beer. Right. So I went to the New Mutants and saw it in IMAX oh. opening weekend. Eight whole people in the IMAX theater. You ate whole people? No, 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 no. <laughs> there was only eight people in there, including David and I. Ah, okay. So, and they're spread far enough apart. I actually wasn't really concerned with any of it. So that was kind of neat. And, and our local theater has a really cool system for booking seats and every other row being empty. And there's always two seats empty in between each group of people that bought tickets. Okay. And then I know a manager that works at that theater and he was telling me about these mist guns they have. It's basically like a backpack full of this sanitizer. And after every showing, they go in and mist all the chairs down. Okay. So that's pretty cool. So it's neat that they're, they're going through all that. But just real quick on New Mutants, I've been excited about this movie for like the past three years that it was supposed to come out. And it was supposed to be a horror take on some younger mutants from, from Marvel stories. And it was actually a retelling of the Demon Bear saga, which was a, a comic saga that came out. But this movie had a lot of ups and downs and going from rated R to PG-13. And last I heard, it ended on rated R again, right? With reshoots. And then Disney bought Fox. So it's the last Fox-released Marvel movie. And it ended up coming out PG-13. And the movie had some cool scenes, but you could tell it was just chopped to fuck. And <laughs> a rated R version would have been really cool. And there's a lot of scenes from the previews missing. Uh, but I will say they made magic badass. She could have her own movie. And that was uh, that was probably the whole point. Anya Taylor-Joy playing Magic. So, you know, we've talked about her enough times on the podcast, right? Yeah. But after New Mutants, we went back to David's place to drink some root beer whiskey and some pumpkin beer. And we broke up the Shutter account and watched two new horror movies with random acts of violence in the shed. And where do I go with these? I don't, they're <laughs> new, so I don't want to spool anything. I thought random acts of violence was fucking awesome. It had a good cast. It didn't hold back on some kills. It did an original slasher idea, and for this being, you know, a fucking comedy actor's first foray into writing and directing a movie and him making that, I'm just mind blown. Like, how many times in the show were we like, I wonder who the next slasher director is going to be, and I would have never thought that we'd say Jay Burchell. <laughs> I know, right? And uh, I've seen this one, too, and with it being so new, I don't want to say much, but it was definitely different, and it was definitely a fun ride. I'll just leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> and then the shed what do i say about the shed i was actually more excited to watch the shed at first because the trailer was badass but what ended up happening was a cheap knockoff of fright night with lots of nonsensical decisions being made for an hour and a half <laughs> um i yelled at the tv during this one because it was just like no like you should be doing this right now like that's every there, uh, mm -mm. It's too new for me to go into detail, but there's it could have been so much better. I'm actually going to go into a little detail because okay. it just aggravates me. <laughs> um, it was a really cool idea. Vampire hiding in the shed from the sunlight, terrorizing this kid, right? And the previews made it look like the kid was going to be purposefully feeding bullies and shit to the vampire. That's exactly. what I got out of the trailer. And that's not really what happens. I will say the actors were fine. They all played their parts well. The special effects were good. Um, the nonsensical thing, and I'll just drop this movie after this. Why didn't he just burn down the fucking she shed? Yeah. Especially once he confirmed it was a vampire and sunlight heard it. Just burn the fucking shed down during the day. Yeah. That's all I'm going to say. It's like poltergeist. 
Like, bitch, <laughs> bitch you knew this the whole time? <laughs> I'll try to wrap this up, guys, because this is going to be a fucking long episode because this is Nightmare on Elm Street after all. But we're both still watching Lovecraft Country. Yep. It's still fucking awesome. It's fucking out there. <laughs> I just know at the end of episode two, I was like, this is a season finale. Where do we go from here? Yeah, true, true. And then you get episode three, and it seemed like just a monster of the week episode, but it was more horror than the other episodes. And it was just so well made. And then it fucking tied it all back into the meta plot again at the end. <laughs> so good. I'm loving the show. Speaking of shows that I'm loving, Boys Season 2's out on Amazon Prime. They released episodes 1, 2, and 3 on Friday. And the wife and I marathoned all three of them. And it is just as dark and fucked up as the first season. Yeah, we did the same thing uh, last night, as a matter of fact. We watched the first three. And uh, yeah, it's it's still... It's still running along, and uh, I still think the pointless, stupid subplot inner demons thing with the deep is so unnecessary yet so hilarious. Uh, well, we got Pat Oswalt for it, so yeah, Happy's fucking talking. <laughs> I really like the addition of Stormfront. Like her dynamic fucking with Homelander is awesome. Yeah, yeah, especially by the uh, the end of episode three and. My wife and I had been watching You're the Worst like in pieces over the past few weeks, and it's a it's a comedy show she was on. So okay, but she's still got the same kind of fuck you attitude in both shows. So it's it's cool to see her in there. Josh, did you see anything else during the uh, the break that you want to mention? I did see a movie called Spring, which I don't know if you've heard about. It's got David Arquette and uh, dude from Stranger Things in it, the Scoops Ahoy dude. I can't remember the actor's name. David was telling me about this movie, but I haven't seen it and I knew nothing about it. Without spoiling it, because it's new, it's a guy who's trying to get more followers on his live streams, and he happens to be an Uber spree driver, and uh, he decides to take a different route to entertain people, and spree is the dead giveaway of what he's going to do. Ah, uh, he goes on a crime spree, I'm guessing? And it it's really rigid and really terrible. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it is, in my opinion. I like Steve from Stranger Things, but I, I don't know if I've seen him in anything else. I don't know if he can do anything besides Steve. Well, and that may be part of the problem because this felt like, I don't know if it was a direct, uh, this may not even happen, but it felt like there was a director bashing him over the head being, quit doing good acting. I want bad acting. <laughs> it was rough, but I don't think it was his fault. Um, we summoned the darkness. Oh, I want to see that. How was it? <laughs> it's fun. It, it, it's at least good for one fun watch. It's another movie that's going to have you yelling at decision making uh, and stuff's going to pop up and you're gonna, just going to be like, no, I understand what you're trying to do now, but no, this doesn't work. I just see the poster thing come up and my Netflix recommending it to me. And I'm like, that looks cool. Other than that, I know fuck all nothing about it. Yeah, there is some like awesomely funny parts in it for how dark nice. it is and for anybody who doesn't know i if you if you're going in blind it's even more fun but then that messes it up too so i'm just gonna leave it there and uh that's it uh, I've, watched, <laughs> I've watched some terrible things that i'm not gonna bring up but uh that's that's it that's worth mentioning <laughs> please don't we've dragged on enough i know right real quick and we'll dive in i i don't have any updates or corrections on the previous episode i'm sure that's wrong but somebody somebody <laughs> let me know. I'm trying to think if there's any announcements for the podcast. I guess, well, this episode's going to be late by like a week. So there's that. It's going to be long by like an hour. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The next few episodes are all going to be on the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. So I hope you like that and you're ready to dig in there. And we got a big director coming up after that. Dun, dun, dun. And a little something special for Halloween planned, we hope. So 
But anyways, we're here to talk about A Nightmare on Elm Street. And we all know that I'm a Halloween guy. And my favorite slasher film is Halloween. And I always say Mikey's my favorite slasher. But as a whole, I really feel like the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise is the best slasher franchise, at least out of the big three, but maybe of all time. Like, I feel like it has the most cohesive story throughout, right? Yeah. And there's not a lot of duds in it, whereas like your Halloween franchise, your Friday the 13th, things like that, like there are duds in there. Hell, Scream's got duds in my eyes, right? (laughs) I just really feel like this is the best slasher franchise, and I think that Freddy's fucking amazing. I think he's one of the kings of slashers. Obviously, he's one of the big three, but as much as I say Mikey's my favorite, I really like Freddy, too. And we've been wanting to dig into this episode since we planned this podcast. You're damn right. And without further ado, Josh, take us on this long overdue journey. <laughs> so 1984's Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, we're going to go through the, the people and then we'll get into the backstory. Of course, written and directed by Wes Craven. And the origin story, of course, comes from real life. A lot of it, not the dream demon part, but a lot of it. <laughs> which the whole thing there, as far as coming from Craven, anybody listening to this hasn't gone back and is really interested in him and this point in his career. We did do an episode covering his entire backstory from damn near birth, I guess, really from birth. Um, so all that's in there. So uh, I'll, I'll keep the Freddy specific nuggets in here when we get into it. Of course, the movie stars the late John Saxon, which sucks. We just talked about that. As Lieutenant Thompson, also Daddy, because I think he's called that more than anything else in the movie, <laughs> which we've brought up before. You know, it, it's the same role that he had in Black Christmas. <laughs> um, we've got Ronnie Blakely as his wife, Marge, and she's mostly known for Nashville, not the recent show, but the movie from 1975. Um, and not really a genre actress. Um, I will be referring to her mostly as Drinky throughout this review. <laughs> We have Heather Langenkamp as Nancy Thompson, who, you know, it sucks because in more recent years, she's done a lot of cameos and a lot of bad things. And I know she did more work, but she's another one that no matter what, anything she she's done, it'll always be overshadowed by this. Right, but doesn't she do special effects or something now or makeup? Didn't we figure that out on a different episode at some point? Um, yeah, she ended up marrying a special effects guy and now works with him with uh, AFX, and th- which is neat because she ended up being more involved in other stuff as time went on from the other side of the screen. So the way that all ties in by the time you get to New Nightmare is it's it's all real. Like I didn't, I didn't know all this the first time watching New Nightmare. <laughs> We've also got Amanda Weiss as Tina Gray, who did a metric fuck ton of TV. Um, you've got Jesu Garcia as Rod Lane, and everybody's going, "Who's that?" I thought it was Nick Corey. <laughs> That's because he was told at the advice of his agent back then to get a different name. Nobody wants a friggin' anything close to Latino sounding or you won't get gigs. So he went by Nick Corey at the time, which I find his real last name being Garcia even more funny since you've got another deputy in the movie whose name is Garcia. Right. <laughs> his agent told him it was hard for Latino actors to get work in general. So he faked like he was Italian in the 80s. Yeah, poorly. <laughs> hey forget about it (laughs) but uh he ended up doing a lot of tv as well and then of course the big two here at the end we've got johnny depp as glenn 
who what hasn't Johnny Depp done? Of course, Captain Jack right. Sparrow, we've reached the point that that's what everybody's going to always, re- no matter what he does now, that's what everybody's going to remember. And, and Tim Burton movies. Come on, man. He's fucking Edward Scissorhands. Well, and there you go. And Tim Burton's go-to <laughs> guy, uh, which leaves us with Robert England as Freddy Krueger, or at least at the time as it was written, Fred Krueger. Right. This and V. That's, I know he's done a metric fuck ton of other stuff, but he's Freddy Krueger forever. And special effects and the creator of the actual look of Freddy Krueger, David Miller, who we've talked about on here before. And we're going to get into some interesting things about him here in a minute. So there's no way we can go through this movie without talking at least a little bit about New Line Cinema, because this movie would have never happened without Bob Shea and New Line probably never would have become what it became without Nightmare on Elm Street. No way in hell it would have. (laughs) So after limited success distributing films, Bob Shea set off to L.A. to meet some up and coming directors because they at the time New Line had put out a couple of movies on their own, but nothing No, nothing real. Uh, And I say that with air quotes. So he goes and he has meetings with Toby Hooper, Joe Dante, but couldn't get a hold of Wes Craven because these were the three guys he was going to go meet with to see if they had anything that they might be able to work together on. And he eventually got Craven on the phone. He's like, are you working on anything now? What are you doing? And uh, he tells him this boogeyman story as as it's called many times. And uh Bob's like, holy shit, this, this is, this is instantly has a market for it because everybody dreams and everybody has nightmares and Craven's like, well, I'm still talking to other people and Craven shops (laughs) it to other people and everybody else is like, there's no way this is going to work. It happens in their dreams. No one's going to be scared. This is stupid. (laughs) And while he's shopping it, you know, Bob Shea's like champion this thing he just keeps bothering him and eventually craven's like okay fuck it and he sends him the script and he reads it he's stoked and bob shea actually went to work on something else first before they came back to do this movie but they did the stars aligned however you want to put it and after getting several investors many of whom dropped out and luckily other investors picked up the difference the movie goes into production but to get into the origin of Freddy, it's really three main things. Because like we've talked about before, the shit came from real life, not the dream part, once again. And a big part <laughs> of it being three, closer to writing it, uh, three news stories over a span of one and a half years that Wes Craven had read in the LA Times. And it was uh, South Asian young men that were dying in their sleep. And one of them being like the archetype for what became Nancy. And... This kid was terrified of his nightmares. Now, th- these were kids that like escaped Cambodia and shit. So it's very reasonable for them to be having nightmares. But the whole thing with the coffee pot found in the room, the sleeping pills that weren't being taken, the friggin' no-dos and all this shit. And the, these guys were saying, I can't go back to sleep or something's going to kill me. And that's what happened. They died in their sleep and nobody knew why. And it wasn't like heart failure or anything like that. Allegedly, they were just dead. So that stuck with Wes. Who wouldn't that stick with? I know, right? It's like it was a good idea for a movie. Can you imagine the studios that passed on this and like decades later, like, my God. But uh, now to go further back in Wes Craven's youth of what he pulled for the Freddy character was one, he... Uh, he's told this story about living in an apartment and living in a house. So I'm just going to say at his home, um, <laughs> but he, he hears a noise outside the window and he looks and he sees what he, and his later years figures was just a drunk guy wandering around, making noise in the alley. And he had a fedora on and perfectly timed. He just looked up and stared at little Wes Craven and it scared the shit out of him. So he got away <laughs> from the window 
And like you do when you're a kid looking in the closet or under the bed, you count to whatever. And then you go back and look again. And dude was still standing there staring at him like he was doing it just to fuck with him. And that really stuck with him to the point that originally Freddy Krueger was supposed to be an old man. But we'll get more into that later. Fred Krueger, the bully. Of course, this is a true story of where the name came from. And there was a bully in school that used to whoop up on little Wes Craven. And he had so much angst towards him that he didn't use his name once. He really used it twice because Krug <laughs> from Last House on the Left, he had, you know, Wes admitted that's where he pulled the name from was because of Fred Krueger. He was a bad person and, you know, or at least a bad kid. And uh, he wanted to tie that name to something bad. And so rapist, child molester, child murderer, he's, he pretty much covered it all. I hope he spelt the name different. <laughs> what about the thing at the end of credits that says like any likeness to real people, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Is that in this movie? Well, we have to see. there's supposed to be an errors and omissions clause. And there wasn't one in this movie because there was the whole thing with the guy that wrote some movie that had nothing to do with nightmares who sued. It was like, well, it's a scary movie. Like, so who knows if the real Fred Krueger is out there listening, uh, send us an email. S podcast at gmail.com. But at any rate, <laughs> we got to get into the cast for this movie. Originally, Wes Craven didn't want Robert England, And this is the whole thing where it's like, he's too young. It's like, I want a creepy old man. And this is after all, though, don't, we don't put a stunt man in the suit. I want this guy to actually be able to do stuff, blah, 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 right. yada, yada, yada. Which is a great decision. Yes. But once he actually saw uh, Robert England go into it, he was won over by, quote, his ability to relish in being terrible. And it's like, that's it. This guy actually <laughs> loves torturing and killing these kids. He has to have it. Well, the funny thing is I saw Wes Craven say in an interview that, you know, he was worried about him not being old enough. But when he decided on Robert and keeping him, he's like, well, I didn't fucking think about it. He's going to make up latex all over him. You can't tell how old he is anyway. Exactly. <laughs> that's not the only time where Craven said, well, I was wrong about that <laughs> with regards <laughs> to this franchise. <laughs> um, now, Johnny Depp, if you pay attention in the movie, his character is supposed to be a fucking jock. And Glenn is not a jock in the movie, even though it's, you're a jock. Bring a baseball or bat or something. You know, it's like, it yeah, doesn't seem fitting. But uh, and his little cut off football jersey. <laughs> <laughs> but it was actually down to Johnny Depp and one other guy. And Craven says that his daughter looked at the picture of Johnny Depp and is like, it has to be him. He's beautiful. <laughs> and Wes is like, fuck it. If he's going to get the girls, I'll put him in there. And uh, this was Johnny Depp's very first movie. The legend, quote unquote, goes that he went with a friend to a casting call and ended up in the movie. I don't know, but I do know that Wes Craven says that like on set, he was really scared, really nervous, would stand off in corners going over his line so he wouldn't fuck up. And that's cool. That means that he actually gave a shit about what he was doing and look at the career he's had. And he's like the first final girl boyfriend that always comes to mind to me. Yeah. And I mean, he set it up great and he did it well. I mean, <laughs> and he was the hero who saved no one. <laughs> exactly. There's a lot of that in horror movies. The archetype of Fred Krueger, what Wes said, and of course I'm going to put this in here. It goes without saying that everything I'm citing here is from interviews, never sleep again, the fucking documentary film and commentary and the commentary that I ended up listening to is from the original DVD box set and that commentary they actually say on it was recorded for the laser disc release which we'll get into <laughs> something else interesting about the laser disc release of the original film here later but when it came time to decide a weapon like everything else was too normal like you got a chainsaw or a kitchen knife or just something normal and 
Wes Craven was really, really frightened by Wolverine. And he took this inspiration. No, I'm just kidding. Um, he wanted. He <laughs> blew did, my mind there for a second. <laughs> he did want claws though, because it was so primal and animalistic, and uh, it worked out. And it was very fucking unique. There's nothing. There's nothing as iconic as far as a killer's weapon because you can't. It's not repurposed. Everything else is repurposed from elsewhere. But this glove was something you know that the character made themselves, and that's just fucking astounding um all the little pieces that needed to fit together came together and of course david miller while we're talking about freddie he actually sat down for pizza after being <laughs> with wes to go over freddie's look and this is one of those things you heard as a kid that you're like ah, i can see that but that's stupid and then you hear it and it's like oh my god it's true he's sitting there messing around playing with his pizza like burn victim what am i going to do here and really hit on something for with how it would look and he actually took the pizza home instead of eating it <laughs> and used it as a reference to actually get to work on freddie's makeup <laughs> i just want to say when you watch space balls and you see pizza the hut do you see fred krueger yes because i do too yes and uh this is why i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing of course which you know hopefully everybody knows at this point is the red and green sweater. Those two colors were chosen because they're the two diff most difficult colors for the eyes and the brain to process at the same time. So that's another thing that like subconsciously you're building tension when you see the character and you don't even know why a couple more really interesting things before we actually go into the movie. The high school used in the school is John Marshall high school and it was used in zapped bachelor party, pretty in pink, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, along with a lot of other shit. I just think that's neat. But the Star Wars connection. Holy shit, are you going to go into that? <laughs> I'm going to go into this. What's fun is this is an interview that I saw from not too long ago because the legend is that at one point Robert England could have been Han Solo. And that's not right. <laughs> According to, to England, this is one of those interviews that was like Robert England sets the record straight on his involvement in Star Wars. And uh, basically what he said is he was auditioning for a part in Apocalypse Now and the Star Wars crew happened to be across the hall in the same fucking building having people read for Star Wars. And somebody spotted him in the hallway and said, hey, come in here real quick. And just based on the build, the look, wanted to see, hey, can we use him for anything? He, he's, he's here, blah, blah, blah. And said they took some Polaroids. He didn't read anything, like didn't do any parts, didn't do a monologue or anything, but they let him read the sides for the actors. And he ended up reading the sides for Luke Skywalker. And he thought that it would be really good for his roommate, Mark fucking Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know any of this shit. <laughs> I've always heard the story, but as a Star Wars fan, I've never actually seen it from Robert England or a Nightmare on Elm Street perspective. I had always heard, though, that he was there to read for Luke Skywalker, and he was like, this this isn't for me, but it, my roommate could fucking do this spot <laughs> on. And one of them slipped on the other one's couch. It was that kind of roommate scenario. But it's, it's just really funny that Fred Krueger and Luke Skywalker were roommates once upon a time. I know, It right? seems like something... Cracked magazine would have done back in the 80s. That sounds like some friggin' dirty fan fiction stuff that somebody would write. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and uh, so the, the flick that couldn't be sold to any studio once it was made, Bob said, fuck it, we've gone this deep, and they released it on their own. And that's the last interesting thing behind the scenes before we get into it, because they released it, and it made back its budget opening weekend, and then flew off from there. So we open with a small video window. We're into the movie now, guys. 
We open with a small video window, like a Sega CD game, showing someone building Ooh. the glove. And we can hear heavy breathing. And this is not Robert England in this. This was shot afterwards. I want to say it was one of the prop masters that was actually the stand-in for this. Probably because you can see the actual pieces be put together. So somebody knew what the fuck they were doing. Exactly. If you pay attention, it's it's human skin. So this would be a, a pre-burned Fred Krueger anyways, right? <laughs> yeah. Back when, uh, back when he used to do stuff that got dumped in this one but gets brought up later on. But uh, as the glove comes together, we end up seeing the glove stab into a sheet. We get a stinger and we get a crazy ass title card. Oh, no, it's another cheesy 80s horror movie, but it's not. <laughs> and we cut to a young blonde girl in front of this stark white background. And she's wandering around this dilapidated building. And you can hear this voice whispering her name off in the distance. Tina. And uh, she makes her way down to the bowels of this building and into this boiler room. And as she's wandering around, you can hear these faint metal-on-metal scratches in the distance. And they're slowly getting closer until we finally see a shot of the glove scratching across something. And uh, real close to where it looks like Tina is. And we get a real quick view of Freddy as he reveals himself to her, cutting through same said sheet. And she takes off. and She does this really bad stumbling treadmill run thing that I don't (laughs) like, but whatever. And she hooks it around a corner to this little crematorium burner looking thing. And it's a dead end. And she spins around in time to see a a brief view of Freddy's sweater as he cuts by. But where'd he go? Everything's fine. And then he pops right the fuck up from behind her. She screams herself awake. So once she's awake, mom's you know, comes in the door because of the screaming. She's, she notices that the, well, both of them notice that her nightgown's all slashed up. And, and mom's like, damn, you've got to cut your fingernails. You're having some serious wet dreams. And that's, <laughs> that's not what she says, but it's implied because she's like, you either got to cut your fingernails or stop dreaming like that, sweetie. Right. <laughs> and then creepy old, you know, boyfriend or stepdad or whatever comes in. Yeah. Fla- mom's flavor of the week. We're going to hit the sack again or what, toots? Something like that. (laughs) Yeah. What'd they use back then if they didn't have Viagra? Whatever he was using, it kicked in and he didn't want it to go to waste. (laughs) Cocaine. (laughs) So we then cut to the girls in white jumping rope as the rhyme plays. And the girls in white was always part of Craven's idea. And it's a really neat shot that on the commentary, because on the DVD commentary, you've got the the DP on there. Jacques, uh, what's his nuts? And Cousteau. uh, Uh, Yeah, definitely. (laughs) And he goes on this thing about how this is all one shot with one of the one early computer controlled camera, because like the way the focus pulls and everything over to the car and then dollies and goes over. He's like, I'm really proud of this shot. Nobody ever asks about it, but this is a really complicated (laughs) computer controlled shot. And I'm like, damn. But we see the kids in Glenn's convertible getting out at school. So as they're walking, Tina tells Nancy, Glenn and Rod about the dream she had. When I woke up, it seemed like he was still in the room with me. Like a real boogeyman, one two Freddy's coming for you. And that's what it reminded me of—that old jump rope song. It was the worst nightmare I ever had. You wouldn't believe it. And Nancy says she had a terrible dream as well. And of course, Rod chimes in. I had a hard on this morning when I woke up. Tina had your name written all over it. There's four letters in my name, Rod. How could there be room on your joint for four letters? <laughs> That is like the sickest of sick burns. Yep. And then he channels what he was told to channel up yours with a twirling lawnmower. <laughs> so bad. Italian. See, <laughs> but we like all of our Italian fans and uh, all of our Italian non fans, by the way. <laughs> so Glenn is like the, uh, 
the voice of reason throughout the movie, so to speak, in, in some of his lines. And this is one. He comes right in and says, you've just got to tell yourself it's just a dream. And that works for him. So there's inklings already that like everybody's having these dreams. But we'll go more into that as the movie unfolds. God bless. Did you ever think that you would say Johnny Depp was the voice of reason in something? Like and if you just think about the last 10, 15 years of his life or career. 20. <laughs> 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 oh, so that night, Nancy and Glenn agree to stay over with Tina. Because keep in mind in this film, what you're supposed to understand is that Tina's 15 and Nancy is 16. So she doesn't want to freak out with these nightmares going on while her mom's out of town. Now, Glenn's having some trouble getting to stay with two girls for the night. But he got a sound effects tape from Rod, and he's got a plan. Because see, he's got a cousin <laughs> that lives by an airport. <laughs> And he calls his mom and he's playing the effects tape and it goes from the airport. It's like, yeah, yeah, I'm here at Barry's. All right, well, I got to go. And then like you hear cars like drag racing and then a wreck <laughs> and then a woman screaming. He's like, oh, I think there's been an accident. <laughs> I love that. But uh, after the fucked up phone call, we've got Tina and Nancy sitting there on the couch and they start talking about this whole dream thing. And Nancy does this terribly delivered line of, oh, that just made me remember my dream. And I'm going to say this right here. God bless her. Heather Langenkamp, the character that she plays in the movie of Nancy going from the, the wide-eyed, I have no exposure to the real world girl to I have to fight this evil force. It was played a little weird and a little too rigid, I think, on the transition, which it is whatever. Years later, it has some charm to it. But there's so many things about this movie that if you just cherry picked to someone who's never seen it and showed it to them, it would feel and look like a dime a dozen crappy movie. I slightly disagree. I feel like the transition was done really well because she experienced enough shit. I will say she has really bad robotic lines of dialogue thrown in throughout the movie, whereas she also has some fantastic dialogue that she delivers properly. It's kind of like the uh, George Lucas effect, right? <laughs> like, like you can't say some lines and it, and it works. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I agree, but it's weird how her delivery gets better as the lot, as, as the lines get more serious. I don't know if that was part <laughs> of it or what. She really becomes like a hardened badass. I feel like properly throughout the movie. Like she plays that better than the uh, sheltered preppy kid. Yeah. But as Tina and Nancy go back and forth, they're talking about how it's this man with the messed up face and the green and red sweater. It's like, holy shit, we've been dreaming about the same thing. And it's like with those fingernails. Well, well, he liked to scratch his fingernails on a lot of things. Actually, they were more like finger knives or something, something he'd made himself. Now, right when that gets said, Glenn looks up like, holy shit. And you know, right then he's been having the right. same dreams. And I don't think a lot of people notice that casual movie viewers. There are a lot of little subtle things done like that with the kids that I really like throughout the movie. Cause you see Rod kind of do it somewhere in there too. Yeah. Well, you're really fixed to get it with Rod. Hmm. <laughs> that's a, that's a poor, poor choice of words, <laughs> but as Glenn, <laughs> but Glenn tries to play the whole thing off until they hear something scratching outside. And the girls literally push Glenn into the back alley. <laughs> <laughs> like, you're the jock. You go investigate. And he, of course, is quickly tackled by Rod. And Rod shows off the little garden rake thingy. I don't know what it's called that he was using to make the noise. And Wes Craven kept that along with the sledgehammer that's used in the movie. And along with a lot of the wardrobe, he said, which I thought was interesting. Speaking of keeping shit, and I got to derail Josh for a minute because this is so badass. Jensen Eccles said in an interview this weekend that he begged and they're going to let him keep the Impala after Supernatural's done. He gets to drive it home. Oh, he gets to keep baby. 
Yeah. No shit. Sorry, I had to throw that in there. <laughs> Anyways, enough of my, my first derail of the evening. Of course, Rod's there for one thing, and he's like, why are y'all here? Your mom ain't here, is she? We're, we got something we got to take care of. <laughs> it's like, hey, we got her mom's bed. You got the rest of the house. And uh, Glenn tries to get some immediately. He's like, well, there, you know. And she's like, oh, come on. We're here for Tina, not ourselves. <laughs> like, Tina's busy. <laughs> But we've, we've all been there, right? Where it's like, oh man. Cause it, then it cuts to Glenn laying there on the couch, just listening to Tina. Oh, oh. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, he's just laying there with blue balls. <laughs> so we do cut upstairs to see what's going on post coitus. Cause jungle man fixes Jane and, uh, <laughs> Rod's like no more fights and Tina's you know, she's like, no more fights. And Rod's like, good. No more nightmares for either of us. And she's like, you've been having nightmares too. And he's like, guys can have nightmares too. It's not like you got a corner on the market. So now we are, it's everybody. So it's indiscriminate. What the fuck's really going on here? Cause I have to try to play this from an angle of when this was fresh. Not everybody knows who Freddy Krueger is. Let's look at how this movie was when it was fresh is what I'm trying to do here. So back in Tina's room is where Nancy's sleeping. And uh, this cross falls off the wall. And it's a cross that you could see behind Tina when she woke up from her nightmare in the beginning of the movie. And Nancy hangs it back up on the wall. And immediately afterwards, you see fucking Freddy Krueger's head, hand, and glove push like he's coming out of the wall. And it looks like it's composited. It really looks like it was shot on a plate and inserted. And it's not. It's a piece of spandex. (laughs) And it looks so good the way it's lit. (laughs) That is one of the most iconic scenes in the movie to me is him pushing through that wall and that crucifix falling down like that. It's just so fucking creepy. And I remember it as a kid. Like that's one of the scenes that stood out to me as a kid that creeped me out. Cause this is one of those movies I saw way too young on my older sister. <laughs> <laughs> and I just remember being afraid of the wall behind me because of it. It's like, I mean, as a kid, it was the scariest scene in the movie to me by far. Yep. You know, I'm going to go ahead. I should have done this earlier. I don't remember the first time I saw this one. I can remember seeing four and five coming on channel 24 or 30 on weekends when I was in my early teens, but I never sat down and watched all the movies until the DVD box set came out. So there's that. But Nancy wakes up and notices the cross on the bed, not the Freddy because he sucked back into the wall. And uh, she hangs the cross back up again, like, oh, it was just that. And I think that's when she knocks on the wall. It's like, just so we know it's a real wall, which is kind of (laughs) cheesy. But at the same time, it's neat when you think about it. This is a perfect visual representation of something trying to come out of its world into the real world with a $5 sheet of spandex. Which is interesting if you think about it, though, because... (sighs) You hear so many debates between this franchise on Freddy being able to do things in the real world versus the dream world, and that's real world right there. Or was she dreaming that? We'll save that for the end. (laughs) And the sequel. (laughs) So meanwhile, Tina gets woke up by rocks being thrown at the window. But it's about to get worse. Much worse. (laughs) Tina heads down to the alley to see where the rocks are coming from. And she sees Go Go Gadget Freddy. With his stretched out arms <laughs> walking down the alley, which of course is just two guys with fishing poles holding up these arms. And uh, what's neat is it's the first time you see the glove scratching along metal and throwing sparks. And they literally hooked a car battery up to the glove to get it to oh. arc when it touched the metal. Yeah. And uh, Tina cries for help, but it does not bring the response she hoped for. Please, God. This is God. 
And that's really like his first witty line, right? Yeah. And uh, then four foot five Freddy gives chase. And <laughs> Tina runs right into the real Freddy, which I have to make the joke there because the guy they had so they could do both of them in the same shot. It was just it's funny. Even though he's far away, you can tell he's really short. <laughs> it was like my height and shit. It was really neat that they were able to get Tom Cruise for the small part. Oh, I know. oh you got two in there. <laughs> I got dad jokes for days. <laughs> Oh, so after running into Freddy, <laughs> she takes off running the other way and Freddy jumps out from behind a tree. And I always thought this was composited, but on the commentary, it's a half mirror next to the tree and Robert England's behind the camera and just jumps to the side. And that's his reflection. The camera scene. Nice. I, did, I did not know that's how that was done. That blows my mind. And now we get our first reveal of just how sadistic Freddy Krueger is because he fucks with her. He's like, hey, Tina, watch this. And just chops off a couple of his fingers. <laughs> That's fucked up, man. You don't get that out of anybody. Well, later on you will and it'll be cheesy. But this was this was new and different at the time. And they end up wrestling on the back porch because she tries to go run into the house. And in the midst of the wrestling on the back of the porch, she grabs at his face and actually pulls his face off, revealing a skull behind it. And it does the little. <laughs> it's cheesy, but I don't care. It's still fun. <laughs> it's like, what the fuck is this guy? <laughs> See, I, I thought that one still stands the test of time. I, I think that's a tribute to practical effects, right? Oh, but yeah, yeah. It looks great. It's the laugh that was was a little hammy. It's a uh, very army of darkness. <laughs> all of it even the look of the skull it is but by this point tina screams wake up rod and we see what rod's seeing back in the bedroom and it's tina violently struggling under the sheets and he jumps up out of bed rips the covers off just in time to see four slashes just appear down her chest what the fuck's going on <laughs> and uh he goes running for the door and he's beating on the door and he's like screaming for somebody to come in there. And all of a sudden Tina's body lifts up out of the bed and goes spinning around that particular shot. I still don't know how they did it. I don't know if they had a rig and rotoscoped it out or what. I can't find anybody talking about how they lifted the stunt woman up into the air, but uh, she spins around, she kicks rod, knocking him into the corner. And then we see her bloodied body dragged up the wall and over onto the ceiling. Fred Astaire ain't got shit on this. <laughs> and Rod's reaching up and yelling at her and she's reaching down towards him and yelling and then she just fucking falls to the bed there's a big blood splash that we don't get to see in this cut of the film and uh, we just get a quick cut to the blood splashing on Rod's face and Tina's gone there was 13 frames I don't remember or 13 13 seconds of the entire film 13's in there somewhere about what got cut from the movie for its original R rating and the actual now this, this is all on YouTube of course anybody wants to look it up but the splash shot of her actually hitting the bed and going everywhere was on the Laserdisc version the, to this day the Laserdisc release of the original Nightmare on Elm Street is the only one that's actually uncut intact with the two missing scenes actually in the movie don't know what the other shot is <laughs> I've just heard it mentioned <laughs> a little behind the scenes on that scene. The actress playing Tina said it like mentally fucked her up. Right. Like yeah. doing that scene. She's like, when you know you're on the floor, but you can see everything that's supposed to be on the floor above you like that. It just fucks you up. And I was freaking out. And Wes had to come in the room and set up. The, set in there with me. Right. Like, is that the scene I'm thinking of? Yeah. Yeah. Cause he, he walked up to the rig and was looking through the window and he's like, Hey, Hey, I'm see me. I'm standing on the ground. This is the direction the ground is. 
<laughs> yeah, but apparently, like, it just it fucked her up really bad. And I don't know. I think it'd be interesting to be in, like, a, a haunted house room set up like that and just see if it mentally fucked with me or not. Oh, yeah. Like, I love the the tunnels in, like, fun houses that, were, that gives you that disorienting vertigo. Like, the wife hates it. Yeah. A whole gimbal room. Sign me up. <laughs> I want to do that, too. So, Nancy and Glenn, obviously awakened by the screams, come running into the room, and they find Tina everywhere. And they don't find Rod, though. <laughs> they just find an empty or an open window. And we cut to the Thompson family at the police station as Pops is getting the rundown on what happened to Tina. And it's quick, put a bow on it. It's the fucking bad seed Rod. He killed her. He's the boyfriend, you know, and Marge starts giving Nancy shit like, you know, what were you doing over there anyways? Blah, 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 yada, yada. He's such a bad kid. Like, I'm not going into all the dialogue, but that's the point here. And she's like, their fights weren't that bad. It's like, but you're the one who said they were fighting, like trying to put it on Nancy, like open and shut case. You know, they were fighting. He's a bad kid. He killed her. End of discussion. And uh, just setting up real bad that mom's not a good person (laughs) is the point I'm trying to get here. And uh, Nancy's actually really upset. She's like, I can't believe you wouldn't think that I didn't take her death seriously. And uh, that's another line that's a little rigid, but needs to be in there. But pop the cop. He's going to take care of things, right? So we have nothing else to worry about. Meanwhile, his two deputies in the back are taking down the address of the house where it happened. And it's on Fellatio Drive. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a callback right there. (laughs) So the next morning, mom drinks and Nancy heads off to school. This is like Craven runs out of money and Locke has an idea. Peter Locke. <laughs> it's like that bit. Again. <laughs> We're going to get that a lot because mom's going to drink a lot from now on. And on the walk, Nancy notices that she's being followed by a suit. And I guess this is the entire FBI group they could get together. <laughs> I don't know who this guy is. <laughs> he never comes up again. But uh, Rod quickly yanks her into some bushes. And he's like all disheveled and shit and obviously has been running around since the night before. And uh, he's like, I didn't do it. I didn't fucking kill her. You know, it was somebody else. There was somebody else there. And Pops immediately pops up and we see all these cops come rolling in as Rod tries to run away. Nancy was the bait. You used me. <laughs> Guy was probably just an undercover cop or a homicide detective, right? In the yeah. suit. Yeah. I, I keep wanting to look and see what he's credited as because I wonder if it's something funny. But that's it, man. Nancy, Nancy was set up. She was the fucking bait. And now we're going to get into the turning point of the fucking film where the genius of Wes Craven starts to come out. Um, so we've got Nancy in class, Lynn Shay's class. Who I did not know was Bob Shay's sister until like three days ago. How did I not <laughs> fucking know that? Josh made fun of me so uh, hard. I'm the nightmare guy. You're the Halloween guy. <laughs> I still know a lot about these films and I thought Lynn Shay, how did I not fucking know they were related? It never even clicked. And they look a lot alike too. They do. So, uh, anyways, Nancy's sitting there in class as this surfer dude reads Hamlet and Nancy sees a body bag, Tina out in the hallway. Oh, the other freaky scene to me in this movie. And the end of the line of what dude's reading is for if it not that I had bad dreams or something like that. And uh, right. I'm, I'm not well read, of course. And the way that line from Hamlet for him to read got in there is Wes was researching what high school kids looked like at the time just to see what he needed to dress them in. And he was going to schools for research and he went into a classroom where someone was reading this part of Hamlet. <laughs> and, you know. Wes Craven, who learned about 
shit in his dreams, which we'll go into that again later, but it's fuck. Yeah. You know, he's like always writing shit down. He's like, right. What are you reading? What page are you on? <laughs> you know, that's how that <laughs> shit had to go down and it plays out great. And I believe he, he has him say it in like a surfer dude voice. Right. And then he, then he breaks into a, a creepy voice for that specific line. And it just kind of goes into that daydreaming yeah. shit that Nancy's experiencing. Right. Yep. Cause it's, it's so fucking like off putting. Yep, right when she nods off, if you because he's so quiet in the background, she nods off, and you don't know what's going on. But if you listen, it's like there it went. So she follows Tina's body <laughs> as it's dragged down the halls by this unseen force, and uh, <laughs> it goes around the corner with the legs being pulled up in the air and the arm flopping back, and you know it's all just monofilament being pulled out of frame, but it it looks great. And she goes running around that corner, and she runs right into Freddy. No, it's just the hall monitor. Where's your pass? Screw your pass. No running in the hallway. I didn't pick up on this until just recently. Not only does the hall monitor have the red and green sweater, but you know how she's got pigtails? Yeah. One hair thing's red and the other hair thing's green. The little bitty hair ties. I never caught that. (laughs) So that's our first real uncomfortable thing is we see the hall monitor with the glove and talking like Freddy, which is going to become a fucking staple but uh nancy quickly makes it down into a boiler room and it's the same area that we were seeing with tina in her nightmare at the beginning of the movie and she of course has her own encounter with freddie who fucks with her as well he just randomly slices himself open and maggots and green ooze come out because he's like he's sadistic <laughs> he's that's what's so fun about him <laughs> it's fucked but it's fun I don't know why I always want rice with wasabi sauce after that scene, but (laughs) (laughs) it just happens. I don't know. Maybe I'm weird. Don't fuck up sushi for me, man. (laughs) (laughs) I think I just did. (laughs) But Nancy quickly gets cornered just like (laughs) Tina did. And Freddie's coming up on her and she's screaming and freaking out. And she's looking at this steam pipe next to her and she fucking burns herself on the steam pipe and wakes up in class screaming, freaking everyone the fuck out. And uh, (laughs) she's like, I got to go. I'll go right home. And she walks out of frame and Lynch is all like, you'll need a pass. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. But once she walks out in front of the school, she looks down and she's got the burn on her arm. Like, oh shit, this, this shit really is real. Like what happened to Tina? It's, it's all starting to come together now for the audience and somewhat for Nancy. So wanting to be real inquisitive about all this, she goes to see Rod. Like what the fuck did, did what happened? I need to know more. And he's in a holding cell and she goes to talk to him. And he's like, it's like there was someone invisible there. Cause she's like, how could you not know who was in? How did you not get a look at someone who was in the bed with you? And he's like, well, it was, it was like someone was there. Someone wasn't. And, and I saw him cut her, but, but I didn't see him. It was just like four razor blades all cutting at once. And she's like, got this look on her face, like, oh shit. And, uh, Rod was slow to react because he just thought it was another one of his nightmares. Right. And there you go. That's uh, that's why Rod just freaked out and didn't do anything because he thought it was another nightmare. Now, I don't know whether to call him Jesu Garcia or Nick Corey, but whatever. He's credited as Nick Corey, so I'll say Nick Corey. In Never Sleep Again, he talks about being under the influence when they were filming the scene. And he, he's always pissed off about it, and he should have never brought that shit on set and blah, 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 blah. And in the interviews, like 25 years clean and sober, just so everybody knows. I've read in a few places that it was heroin. But he's, I've never caught him admitting it, and I've never caught anybody trying to say, 
No one, I can't find where anybody cited it that he was on heroin in that scene. It's not important to the film. Right. But I just thought I'd bring that up because he brings it up in Never Sleep Again that like, you know, he, I buy him in, in the interview where he's like, I feel so bad that I brought something like that that changed my acting. And I guess he was just as nervous as Johnny Depp. Maybe, maybe, maybe there was something going on that we don't know about where everybody's like, everybody just needs to relax. Come here. <laughs> I certainly hope not. And honestly, it's great that he came out and admitted that and he's been clean for so long, but I would have never thought that it was substance abuse problems in that scene had he not said it. To me, he just looked like he had slept in days and he was in prison for murdering his girlfriend that he didn't murder. I know, right? <laughs> so that's that says a lot. The, the man's talented. <laughs> straight, straight or fucked up. <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, his eyes look fucked up and stuff in the scene like he's high on something, but I yeah. just assumed they did that on purpose to make it look like he hadn't slept. <laughs> I mean, fuck, Nancy's going on seven days here in a little bit in the movie, right? So. She is. <laughs> but now we cut to Nancy in the infamous crotch shot bathtub. <laughs> Just like Deadly Blessing, which we talked about before. On the Craven episodes. Yes. But she's laying there in the bathtub and we get this POV shot from right between her legs looking up at her. Meanwhile, mom's outside the door. Like, hey, don't fall asleep in there. And it's perfectly timed that as she dozes off, Freddie's glove comes out from the water and is slowly getting up towards her. And it's like mom's knock on the door that wakes her up. And the glove just quickly and quietly slinks back <laughs> under the water. The dude that they had under there doing that did a fucking great job. Because she's actually in like a big tank, right? And like there's a guy standing up under her. Yep. Yeah, and just the top of the tank was the tub, and like she was sitting on a board. And, and the, the, when they show, I can't remember his name. I feel like an asshole. But when they're talking <laughs> to him in uh, Never Sleep Again, he's like, "Yeah, so that day, um, I was the guy who just sat there with my head between Heather Langenkamp's legs all day." <laughs> <laughs> he just says it so nonchalantly. I've seen him say it in another interview too. Oh, it's so good. But uh, mom tells her that there's some warm milk for her when she comes out, which I've never understood the warm <laughs> milk thing. Not even as a kid. I guess it harkens back to boob milk, so it's comforting. I'm being serious right now. <laughs> well, and now with watching the boys. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Anywho. There's so many creepy scenes of Homelander randomly drinking milk, too, if you pay attention. Yes, it's so nasty. <laughs> but uh, he Heather, Jesus Christ, Nancy does just what she's not supposed to do, and she falls right back asleep in the tub. And she's yanked underwater, and we get this underwater shot of what Heather Langenkamp is adamant is not her <laughs> in the underwater shot <laughs> where you actually see boobs. And uh, it's not her. That was actually shot after they wrapped in a pool and they just put a tarp over the pool, cut the hole on it to have the daylight come by. And it was a crew member's girlfriend. That was the underwater shit. Okay. So up on top, we see her screaming, hanging out of the tub. That scene is fucking pure nightmare fuel. It is like how, uh-uh. <laughs> I mean, like, I was never I didn't fall asleep in bathtubs because of that. <laughs> oh, I mean, between that and house, right? Like, just thinking about falling through the water yeah. into the fucking void, like, as a kid, terrified me. There's a few scenes in this movie that haunted me for at least a decade. When, when I was young, we had one particular house that when I was in the shower, and I may have told you about this when we were kids, I don't know, that whenever I was in the shower, I wouldn't turn my back towards one wall of the shower. I would only keep my back towards 
the side that the faucet was on because that backed up to the hallway. But the other side, it backed up to a room that if you were in the bathroom, you can tell there's something in that corner. But if you went around to the other side of my bedroom, there's nothing there. It was like this void. And I had built in my mind that Freddie was in there just waiting <laughs> and he was going to get me. I shit you not, man. <laughs> oh, good times. But uh, speaking of stuff from our youth, mom coat hangers at the door. And... Uh, <laughs> And she gets in just in time to help pull Nancy out of the tub. And <laughs> on her way out of the bathroom, she grabs some no-dos. Of course, that's what we grew up with. This is Stay Awake, the Kmart no-dos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and after the traumatizing encounter, she does what anyone would do. She goes upstairs and puts on Evil Dead. That's how I calm myself down. <laughs> And then just as she's getting relaxed there watching movie time, Billy Loomis comes crawling through the Glenn. Glenn comes crawling yeah. through the window. Billy Loomis is such an obvious nod to Depp. <laughs> I know. We we went into that at great lengths on the Scream episode, but we Jesus, did. man. I can't unsee it either way when you watch either film, you know? <laughs> but when uh when Glenn shows up, Nancy's starting to put shit together in her head and she's like I want you to do something. I'm going to go to sleep and look for something. And if you see me struggling, just wake me up. And he's like, okay. He's like, turn off the lights. It's not what you think. (laughs) (laughs) And as soon as she's in her dream, she's walking down the street in her dream and she stops to turn back. And it's like, Glenn, are you still watching? And he pops out like Michael Myers (laughs) from like the bushes or something. He does. And he's like, yeah, I'm still watching. So he's obviously asleep too, right? Are we, are we going there yet, or is that two Nightmare 3? I, I don't know if their dream's supposed to be joined. I just think it's funny because Nancy's clearly asleep and dreaming, and she's, like, trusting her own psyche exactly. to answer back to it. It's very teenager of her. Oh. So she makes her way across town to the Raccoon City Police Department. and uh, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> There's that one shot of the outside of the police department at night that just reminds me of the angle of the outside of the Raccoon City okay. Police Department, Resident Evil 2. And uh, she can look down through the window into Rod's cell. And just as she looks in, she sees him asleep. And she sees Freddy Krueger do his T2 through the fucking cell door. And it it is. He just kind of melts his way through the fucking bars. So he's not Faye. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Depends if it was cold iron or not, Josh. Oh, come on, man. This is, it's, it's cold iron and lead paint. <laughs> you know it was. <laughs> oh and uh, she's like oh shit and she stands up and she's yelling for Glenn like you know oh my god help blah 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 and then Freddie comes out of the bushes it's so odd like how she moves throughout these three shots but anyways um, Freddie grabs at her and she goes tearing off down this alley and uh, it's a real quick shot of her going down an alley and throwing trash cans behind her and according to Craven on the commentary that one particular shot was directed by Sean Cunningham really? really? I wonder why now Craven jokes a lot, but he let Bob Shea call action and cut on a, a shot later. So maybe Cunningham was there. I don't know. Well, they're friends, right? Like exactly. Was this after they were making pornos together? Yes. Maybe, okay, okay. maybe, maybe even during. <laughs> Jesus. But um, she does make it home and uh, oh shit, this is the shot right here. <laughs> she runs up the Bisquick stairs and, uh, <laughs> this is it. This seals the deal for what you've got with Freddie. You see Tina's face at the door saying, 
Nancy, help me, Nancy, save me from. And then he pulls her skin off of his face and says, Freddy. And like, I love that part. That's it, man. Like the audio is not great, but that sums up his character right there. Like this is the guy we're fucking with. And, uh, she makes it into her room and shuts the door and she's standing there freaking out. And she's got this big mirror on the back of her door. And then Freddie bursts through that fucking mirror into her bedroom and they wrestle around a little bit. And it's okay because her pillow gets the worst of it. And Nancy gets saved from her nightmare once again, this time by an alarm clock. And she's understandably mad at Glenn because <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he's asleep. And uh, Glenn ends up going back out the window. And I think, is this the scene in the movie where he's barefoot? Like he climbed this rose covered fucking trellis barefoot. I don't know. I, I think it is at some point he's bitching about the thorns in his feet. Well, that's the thing. He doesn't even. St- oh, yeah, yeah. You're not the one standing here. Uh yeah, yeah, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, that's right, that's right. But why? But I think the mom's at the door, and then, like, is this where the feather starts falling? Yes, because she tells him to wait there, and because uh, mom comes in through the door, and then mom goes back out, and she sees the one feather go out the window, but uh, Glenn's gone. Which I think is really weird. I thought I rewatched both these last night because, you know, we were supposed to have recorded a week ago, so I wanted to just rewatch them both, not taking any notes, just to have them fresh, and I don't know, it's just really odd to me that Glenn's not there. He's just fucking vamped out. <laughs> so after this, Nancy's sure of shit, and she goes across the street, because I guess to anybody who doesn't know, they Glenn and Nancy do live across the street from each other in this, and she grabs Glenn, and they haul ass to the jail. And they go in and she's demanding to go downstairs and see Rod and the cops aren't into it, but they take her down there and everybody goes there just in time to see Rod hang himself. But what we see is awesome reverse shot trickery of Rod's own bed sheets wrapping around his neck and stringing him up like a snake, basically. Well, yes, it's like a snake. And I now think that Freddy Krueger killed Jeffrey Epstein. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Are we going there? Yeah, he's like, I'm the molester. (laughs) So with Rod dead, we get a quick cut to Rod's funeral. Nobody cared about Tina's funeral, but we get a quick cut to Rod's (laughs) funeral. Just saying. But the cemetery we cut to is the same cemetery we'll later see in Nightmare 7. Oh. These shots that are coming up, you can also see the very rare Ohio palm trees in some of these shots. (laughs) (laughs) Because this is supposed to be taking place in Springwood, Ohio. So Springwood is, of course, a fictional town, but Craven was from Ohio. And that was the whole point of, of that being the location. And... Every town has an Elm Street. That's not what Craven said. That's just a line years later in the movies, which I like. But uh, <laughs> he, when he went, uh, when he taught at Clarkson College, there was an Elm Street, and it's also the name of the street JFK was assassinated on. And that's those are where Craven right. said he actually pulled from for that. But I do love that every town has an Elm Street, even though it's a <laughs> shitty movie. It's still fun. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> so as uh, Nancy and her parents go to leave the funeral, Nancy's like. You know, the killer's still out there. Like, I don't know his name, but he's burn up. He wears this weird hat and this green and red sweater, and he has knives for fingers. And mom and dad just look at each other and give each other the oh fuck look. <laughs> like, <laughs> what do they know? Like, it, I try to imagine this as a new movie, like with 38 year old Josh. Like, this is what, what else is going on that I don't know about? This is fun. And honestly, you don't really catch that scene until after you know. Yeah, I know. That's a second watch kind of scene. There's a lot of second watch. Like the teenagers in the uh, car, like uh, Glenn, 
having that I had that dream two face like you don't catch any of that shit like you might have saw it the first time you watched the movie but until you know what's going on it's not meaningful to you and I love <laughs> that kind of world and story building yes we don't need lasers and explosions and giant monsters like subtlety tact those are <laughs> fun sometimes though yes just I don't need that in my horror I don't need that for a horror movie that's my thing so any good parent, quote unquote, makes things worse by trying to make things better. So mom takes Nancy off to see Roger Rabbit and Mimi Craven. And the, they <laughs> Holy could, shit, is that Roger Rabbit? Yes, Charles Fleischer. <laughs> so Jesus, that's actually one of the worst delivered lines in the entire movie, by the way. I know somewhere to get her help or whatever <laughs> yes. she says. Whatever mom to get her says some is so bad. <laughs> but she's taken her to the sleep center. For reals, though, Charles Fleischer, the guy who voice would go on to voice Roger Rabbit, is the main guy, and his assistant is Mimi Craven. And they put her under, and he's got the monitor going, sitting there with mom. And uh, if you look at the columns of activity while he's talking, and it's like, like, see this? And it's like at a three, and he's like, if this goes to a five or a seven, we're in a nightmare. And uh, <laughs> can you see that she's hitting rim right now he like explains everything yeah well she of course goes into a nightmare and the stats go off the charts and if you keep looking at the monitor that column goes up to like 30 or 40 when he's like oh really yeah and he's like five or seven would be high right now (laughs) and they run in and wake her up and we see that she's so scared she now has the tuft of gray hair cuts Mm -hmm, on her mm -hmm. arm and freddie's fucking hat See, I haven't had the hat happen to me, but the gray streaks in my hair and my beard, I just tell people it's from Nightmares of Freddy Krueger. <laughs> I just don't want to admit that I'm getting old. <laughs> so we cut back to the house and with evidence in hand, Nancy really goes after Drinky because she's got physical evidence now. Like it's even got his name in it, mom. Fucking Fred Krueger. What is this shit? You know what's going on. And I love it because when the scene starts off, because w- w- Drinky's been drinking and <laughs> she's got a bottle sitting on the counter next to the fridge and you see her like step sideways to try to block it. And Nancy's berating her and shit. And then she ends up getting up next to her and pulls the drawer open behind her. And that's where mom's hid the hat. And that was right. so clever because every time I watch it, I'm like, she's trying to hide the booze again. And it's like, oh no, she's trying to hide the hat. Exactly. What does mom know? But mom has some evidence of her own. Fred Kruger can't come after you, Nancy. He's dead. Believe me. I know. That shit's so dark when you when you hear that. <laughs> no, right? Because I actually can't stand the mom's acting in this movie, but I love that part. That and locked, locked, it's all locked. That part, yes. <laughs> Just those two parts. She's perfectly hammered in that scene. Um, so then Nancy heads off to see Glenn, and they meet up on this bridge. And there's another one of those Ohio palm trees in the background. That's where I noticed the palm tree <laughs> last night. And uh, Glenn starts talking about, well, have you ever tried the Balinese way of dreaming? You know, when you're in a dream and you're falling, just pretend you're falling into something nice, like a poem or a song. You know, they get all their arts from dreams and uh, they just wake up and write it down. And I'm like, holy shit, this is the whole Craven dream studies thing <laughs> <laughs> um, where Craven would do that shit. If you think about it, this this whole scene makes the Jock Glenn make sense. See, the football team has to keep a certain GPA. <laughs> oh, this nut has been cracked. <laughs> <laughs> and they have philosopher Glenn in here, right? And he's on the team. in hand. <laughs> right. We don't know what position he plays, but he helps the guys with their homework. 
<laughs> he's a he tutor. has high grades himself. Oh, some good shit. <laughs> I'm glad I was able to, to fix this for you. Um, something even cooler than the Ohio palm tree in the background is the wide shots are shot on this location of the bridge, but all the up close shots of the dialogue are on the roof of the studio. That's oh, how, that's how they shot that. I'm trying to think that's neat. But Nancy ends up asking Glenn, well, what happens if they run into a monster or something? And he's like, well, they just turn their back on it and take its power away. Okay. We need to be getting to the third act then. <laughs> but Glenn does comment on Nancy's sweet ass survivalist book that she's got. Because <laughs> she's just randomly got this guerrilla warfare. Improvised. And improvised. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a, an actual <laughs> book. And Wes in an interview is like, I don't know what it is with me and booby traps. I did it in Last House on the Left. I just love them. Yeah. Did it in People Under the Stairs? Like, that's. Yeah. He likes booby traps. So, uh, so Nancy goes home, and this is when she realized that the windows are all barred up, even the little bitty window on the fucking door. But can a body even fit through that? Foreshadowing. <laughs> <laughs> How about. Is there an awning and is there a window over that awning and is it barred up? <laughs> oh, we're real good at, at corrections corner. <laughs> the, uh, the rose thorny trellis is torn down too and in a pile in the yard, but she goes in and this is when we have drinky spilling the beans conversation and she takes Nancy down to the little boiler furnace, whatever. I guess furnace is the actual thing here. It's not a boiler. Anyways, <laughs> it's a fucking representation of the boiler room to me. Right. And in this furnace, there's a fucking glove that's about to be revealed. And mom goes on this whole thing about how, well, Freddie used to kill kids and somebody didn't sign a search warrant in the right place or something and he got released. So mommy and friends got together and we followed him home and we killed him. Public justice. Public justice. Now, there's an extended version of this that you can find online. I don't know what where what disc has this, but just go online. Where mom actually says, Nancy, you weren't always an only child. Neither were your friends. And that means so much more if it's like, oh, shit, you were one of it was one of your kids, not just, oh, we got drunk and decided to have a lynching like it was personal. I don't know why that ever got dumped. It, it's so powerful and it, it really needed to stay and it changes the entire dynamic of it. Cause it's like, why would Marge be the one to have the glove? Why wouldn't it have been somebody who lost their child? And it's cause she did, you know what I mean? Like, there you go. <laughs> just, they left that out. I don't know. That's gotta be like one of the greatest blunders in, in film history of a deleted line. Yes. Now, this is the part where I'm going to bring up that uh, originally the whole thing is he was not just a child killer. He was a child molester. And that was in the script and supposed to be in the film. And when they went into production, I forget the name of the place, but there was this, this shit all in the news about this school where the kids were coming out and saying that there was a very organized child molestation thing going on and that they were taking the kids down into tunnels under the school. Like this veers off into some crazy conspiracy shit. Yeah. Is what ended up happening with the whole story. But everybody's like, we got to dump the kitty diddling part. We, we just, no, no, too hot of a topic right now. Those two things make the movie so much more serious than it is yes. on the surface. And the only thing I can think of that remained in the movie, and you got to really be paying attention, is when Tina's running through the boiler room tunnels from Freddy at the beginning of the movie, 
she runs up and the camera cuts to like a little closet room and it has a bed, like somebody sleeping in there. I think there's even a teddy bear or something on, on the mattress. Like I might be adding that in my head. I don't remember, but like you can clearly tell that it's somebody's room in a bed yep. and it just cuts to it so quick. And I'm assuming that was a longer shot. And I'm, I'm guessing that was the room, right? Yep. Had to have been. So it's Wes Craven. We've talked about this before. He was into dark themes, deep themes, you know, and this is that that's the kind of shit he went with first. Look at Last House on the Left. Look at fucking Hills Have Eyes. Like there was no way you weren't going to have this weaved into this. But once you stack on the dream thing and everything, I'm getting I'm getting ahead of myself. But it's just it's layers upon layers. And I never got why people got so mad in the remake where they're they explicitly said it and like that might not have really been the case no it was the case it was always the case <laughs> exactly so now that nancy knows that everything she's seen is real and knows the origin of where this guy comes from it's time to enact act three's plan and she calls glenn and she says she's gonna pull freddie out and that she needs him there to whack him with a bat or something and this is another neat uh as far as production thing goes, the wide shots of them looking out the window at each other is real that on the street, they actually Glenn's house is Glenn's house and Nancy's house is Nancy's house. But the, okay. uh, but the tight face shots of them talking is actually shot later on the set. So I just think that's a little neat thing, but there, you know, he's got to be a jock so he can bring a bat or something. And they agree to meet at midnight, but Nancy gives Glenn a very clear warning. Whatever you do, don't fall asleep. So Nancy plays like everything's fine and Drinky puts her to bed, but we quickly see that she's all hopped up on Nodos and has a backup coffee pot because mom walked off with her coffee pot that was sitting on top of the TV, but she's got another one under the bed. Right. <laughs> so she calls Glenn because it's time for them to meet up, but Pops answers the phone. Well, actually, mom answers the phone and she's like, she says, she says you need to speak to Glenn now. It's important and it's personal. And dad just takes the phone away and is like, Glenn's asleep. I'll have to talk to him tomorrow. Click. As a matter of fact, and takes the phone off the hook asshole dad you don't right getting into later movies but like yep you just killed your son good job <laughs> we put you in father of the year category so are we to assume that tina rod and glenn all had older siblings yes because in, okay. the, in the cut line that actually gets said uh it was all of them not yeah just Nancy. yeah not just you but your friends as well so would have been uh, so much better yeah anyways so after this, you know, Nancy's like, well, shit, what am I going to do? And the phone rings and she picks it up and all she can hear is the scratching of Freddie's claws. And she freaks out and hangs up the phone, rips the cord out of the wall, winds it around the phone, puts it in the bed. And then the phone rings again. And this time, Freddie has a message for her. I'm your boyfriend now, Nancy. Tongue coming out. Ah. Yeah. And it's so cheesy, but it works. And this is another good time to bring up the whole poking holes from the dream world to the real world because... She's awake and the thing on the phone happens. So anyways, I'm assuming, and I don't know if I would have thought of this had I not seen the remake, that it's the whole micro napping thing. I have my own theory. Because somewhere in here is when she tells Glenn that she's been up for seven days straight. Yeah. So she's probably dozing in and out if you think about it. But don't worry. The record's 11 days. She'll be just fine. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she's like, I checked Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> so she rushes down to the front door and this is the scene with mom <laughs> where she realizes she's locked in and she's all locked locked all locked i don't even have the key <laughs> on me 
<laughs> She'd probably fucking swallow the goddamn thing. Oh, so uh, since things are going wrong, let's go check in on Glenn. <laughs> so Glenn has fallen asleep watching Miss Nude USA and listening to... <laughs> I don't know what, but he's got the record player next to him. He's got the TV on his crotch, which is really funny. Since the last time we saw him, he was talking to his mom. And she's like, how do you listen to the TV and the radio at the same time? He's like, well, I'm watching Miss Nude USA. And, and, <laughs> and she's like, well, how are you going to hear what, what she has to say? And he's like, who cares what she has to say? <laughs> I know. That's so fucked up. But then you cut back later and the TV's sitting on his crotch. Like, what were you doing, Glenn? <laughs> Well, right. At, just so you know, it's midnight. You get the uh, off-air song yes. starts playing. Well, yeah, we get the the cut to static sign off. Um, and Glenn's asleep. He's fucked. And uh, Freddie's fucking gloved hand comes straight up out of the bed, grabs him right by his torso, yanks his ass down. Him, the TV, the stereo, the headphones, everything. And then this geyser of blood that Sam Raimi had to have been proud of comes gushing <laughs> up out of the bed. Now. This is the same gimbal room that they used for Tina. And you'll notice when it, it cuts towards the end of the scene, when his mom opens the door, that all the blood's like smearing, like sideways across and like off the lamps and shit. This was after the incident had already went into motion because the whole rig was spun by hand. And they released so much blood that they wanted to do a thing with turning it sideways because it would look cool. And the whole rig got away from him. So it's spinning. It's ripping cords out. People that are touching the blood water are getting fucking electrocuted. It was just a big, big fuck up. But they kept the shot. Looks good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because they only had one chance at it, right? Because it was so messy. And even without knowing the backstory, when you see the room and you see the blood spraying straight up to the to the ceiling, and then it just fucking starts going at an angle, it is so creepy in otherworldly without knowing the backstory that, that it, it just fit anyway. So it's cool that they had to keep it. Yep. So by Glenn, this was a deleted scene that I'm glad was deleted. The bed was going to spit him back out all covered in blood, which it's out there. They shot it and it's stupid. <laughs> See, I like that scene. I, don't I disagree like <laughs> because uh, at least there would be a body there and stuff for the crime scene, you know, and it, not be completely fucking crazy to the cops, but not seeing the body makes the mop and vomiting. Yeah. Work so no, much right. better. Um, I mean, on paper it sounds cheesy, but like, I think it, it's like disturbing in its own way. When you see it, when you see them just rise out of the fucking bed, this corpse fall over and the bed shut back up. It, it's, it's pretty disturbing looking, <laughs> like by itself. So of course the police show up at Glenn's house and pop shows up is there to what's uh, I'm going to call the mop up. Because <laughs> as he's coming in, one of the guys is like, you don't need a body bag. You need a mop. And I'm an asshole. Isn't Lieutenant Daddy's partner guy, is he not the same guy who got cast in Scream to be the sheriff? Yeah, one of the main cops that's, that's with Saxon is the sheriff in Scream. Okay. Yeah, I can't remember which one. I, I think it might be that guy. The one who, get my dad, asshole. I should go get him. Anyways, I, sh- I should have fucking wrote it down. <laughs> Honestly, I've never watched Nightmare on Elm Street and, and tried to like place them and figure them out. I always forget until after I watch it. <laughs> oh, but uh, Nancy tries calling over to the house and this time daddy answers the phone and she's like, daddy, I want you to come home in 20 minutes. I'm going to go into my dreams and get the bad guy and I want you to be here to arrest him when I pull him out. 
And uh, at this point, she sounds like she's lost her mind. <laughs> it's yeah. a great, Delirious. Yeah, yeah, it is a great scene. And then they play off the scene later when we get to New Nightmare. But anyways, so now we get the booby trap montage. <laughs> and she's fucking setting up the hammer and setting up tripwires, emptying shotgun shells with uh, putting the gunpowder into a light bulb. All this shit's yeah. real. <laughs> like, not real on set, but like, the, these are real methods to do stuff to fucking set up homemade booby traps. I'm going to say it right now. She has the best final girl transition that I can think of. <laughs> like, she's the most badass final girl. You could argue that your next has the you know most badass final girl, but it's not quite the same kind of final girl scenario. That's a home invasion movie. It's a little yeah. different. Like, when you're talking about slashers, like Nancy... I know it's not a Halloween movie band, but she's, she's fucking badass in this. <laughs> so with everything prepped, she puts Drinky to bed. <laughs> she sets the alarm on her watch and she says the my soul to take prayer, which is interesting when you look at later in Craven's career. Mm-hmm. Plus, mm-hmm. this is used multiple times by him. I just want to say, I know she hasn't slept in seven days, but the amount of nodos and coffee in her veins in the past 30 minutes, how the fuck is she going to sleep? Yeah. <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> that bothers me every time. I'm like, we just watched you chug coffee and take more notos, and you're like, oh, it's nap time, you know? <laughs> but at any rate, she does. She goes to sleep, sets off to get Freddy. And once in the dream world, she goes down into the boiler room and she straight up called him out. Like, why don't you come out and face me? And uh, he finally pops up. And this is a weird shot because she, like, jumps in between two pieces of equipment into this dark void. And the next thing you know, she's landing in her front yard in the pile of rose trellis. And what was supposed to happen there that got cut for budgetary reasons and visited later in the series was there was going to be a long falling through nothingness, like in a dream thing. And then her land in the yard. So that kind of makes more sense, but I still think it's odd that why, why don't you grab Freddie? And then jump into the hole hoping it would wake you up. But I, she's got a timer on her watch that works in the dream, so maybe it was too soon. I don't know. But after getting up out of all this shit, her little, uh, her little talking watch, which was actually uh, Wes Craven's watch, or at least a watch like his that they made fun of him for having, starts saying, 10 seconds, 10 seconds. <laughs> Countdown timer's running. It's going to go off. And um, Freddie pops up out of the torn down rose trellis pile thing. And she pounces on him just as her alarm goes up, but she wakes up alone. And we even get the line out of her. She's like, oh, my God, I really am crazy. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And uh, then Freddie immediately fucking pops up. And uh, Nancy's already yelling, like, starting here in the bedroom and then everywhere she gets a chance. Like, Daddy, I got him. And I I think it may be this one already that, no, it's downstairs. I don't remember. But one of them dudes out in the yard because the lieutenant tells him to watch his house after the phone call. And she's yelling at him. She's like, get my dad, you asshole. He's like, maybe. I yeah, just like breaking him. all the windows and shit. <laughs> yeah. And she's so she immediately starts leading Freddie through the house and uh, starting off with the, the sledgehammer trap coming out of the bedroom and then down into the living room with the tripwire with the light bulb exploding. And then she makes her way down into the basement and it's really cool camera work the way they did this. Cause she comes down the stairs, grabs a jug of gasoline and goes around the stairs as Freddie's coming around the stairs the other way in the corner. And she just dumps douses, lights his ass on fire and then goes running upstairs. And the shot from 
burning in the corner, running all the way up to the stairs, banging on the door, falling back down the stairs, standing up and going halfway up the stairs and collapsing is all one continuous burn. Yeah. And this was back before they were smart enough to like do oxygen tanks hidden under the suit and shit like that. To my understanding that back then it was just hold your breath. Here it comes. And this was not Kane Hodder. And that's not a Kane Hodder burn joke. That was. Cause he has like one of the longest burns in history. Exactly. And one of the Friday the 13th, but I don't, I don't know. Like I've heard both of, I've heard Kane say that he has the longest burn in history, but I've also heard that this was the longest burn. So I don't know. This seems like the longest because it's quite a fucking trek through the house. Yeah, it feels long. Oh, this is it. This is it. While Freddy's burning in the basement, that's when Nancy goes and breaks the window and we get the, get my dad, you asshole. And (laughs) uh, they finally head over there and they break down the door and she's like, he's down here. And this is another really fun shot the way that it's not a continuous shot. It would be these days, but it's still close enough to be fun to where they look down in the basement and there's nothing there. And then Nancy spins around and she's like, why is half the house on fire? (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was the dad. He's like, what the hell is going on around here? (laughs) (laughs) And she notices these burning footsteps that go through the living room and back up the stairs. And Nancy takes charge running up there and they, she's like, Oh, he's after mother. Love it. Daddy and mother. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and uh, she makes her way up into mom's room and dad's in tow. And Freddie, now we got another burn going. <laughs> He's on fire on top of her. And daddy snuffs him out. And when he pulls the blanket back, there is no Freddie. Only a terrible, cheesy, burn up, rickety arm animatronic corpse of mom. <laughs> I, I will not give this shot any breaks that sinks into the bed and the flashes lights and it sinks into the bed are cool, but the, the rig looks bad and uh, yeah. the, the bed goes back to normal. And uh, Nancy's like, dad, I need you to go downstairs. <laughs> like She's come to terms with, he, I, we ain't done. I know I'm not done. And he just took my fucking mom and I have to finish this by myself. If you look at dad's face, though, I wonder if he saw Marge sink into the bed or if he just saw the corpse and Nancy can see the the supernatural shit because he doesn't look like a what the fuck's the supernatural shit. He just looks disturbed that his ex-wife's dead. And then you hear in, in the, you know, in the next film that the mom killed herself yeah. in her bedroom, which makes you think there was a body present, right? Yeah, yeah. I can totally get behind that with the look on his face that, you know, there was so much vodka in her brains that she, in her brains, there was so much vodka in her veins that she went to have a smoke and just poof. (laughs) (laughs) But no, I really wondered that. I wondered that watching the second one as well. And I haven't seen a lot of the other ones in quite some time. And and I'm going to try to watch the movies from the perspective of wondering if other people can see what the protagonists are seeing. Gotcha. Like, I wonder if they're seeing it differently sometimes and it's just never explicitly stated. Anyways, just just a thought. <laughs> so once daddy's out of the room, you know, Freddie immediately pops up out of the bed. An- another iconic shot of once again, Freddie in spandex. <laughs> and uh, he tears his way out of the blanket. And Nancy confronts him and she says she wants her mother and her friends back. And then she says the magic words. I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing. You're shit. She turns her back as Freddy goes to attack and fades out into sparkly nothingness. <laughs> that scene used to really bother me when I was younger until like 
I, I don't know. For some reason, I never caught Glenn telling the whole, this is how you take their power away, you know, foreshadowing, right? Like, Same. <laughs> in the movie. And I, I don't know, like, it took me years to catch that, and it made the end not bother me as bad. <laughs> I just don't like the sparkling. We could have done something no, no, no. else. I don't understand the fucking stardust shit. Like, it's just so weird. Yeah, he could have just faded out. I would have been fine with that. And this is where I'm going to go ahead and say, Craven, this is where the movie ends. She turned her back on it. (laughs) It has no power. The end. Not with Bob Shea involved. (laughs) If you ignore the fact that people, producers being the people I'm talking about, always want to try to set up the chance for a sequel, I thought it was too happy of an ending. I'm okay with it going dark again after this scene. Oh, yeah. We'll get into that here in a second. But, uh... (laughs) So as Nancy goes to open the bedroom door to head downstairs, when she walks to the other side, she's on her front porch with mom and it's all bright and foggy. And, uh, there's a back and forth between, uh, mom and daughter about how, you know, Oh, well, they say you've hit rock bottom when you can't remember the night before. I think I'm done with (laughs) drinking. You know, did, did I keep you up all night? And Nancy's like, no, I guess I just slept heavy. It's very dreamlike is what I'm getting at here with the dialogue. And, uh, Glenn pulls up in the convertible with the friends. Everything seems to be fine. And Nancy scampers off and gets in the car. And then the convertible top slams down and it's red and green striped and the doors lock and the windows roll up and everyone in the car is freaking out while mom smiles and waves. (laughs) And then you all of a sudden get Freddie's arm burst through the little window in the door, grab mom, yank her through the little window, cut back to the car driving away. And in the edge of the shot, the girls are just sitting there jumping the rope. Then we get the end, which there's a lot of this. I'm okay with funny story with that dog getting yanked through the window scene. It's one, how cheesy it looks when you watch it. And they all, they all knew it looked bad on set when they're filming it. Right. But that scene to me, I can't watch it and not bust out laughing. And it has nothing <laughs> to do with the prop used. Oh, really? My original copy of this movie that I saw was VHS for my parents recording it on HBO. Right. Cause remember they would record shit and I just, we just had fucking cases of VHS tapes labeled and the timing is so bad. The glass breaks, the hand comes out, she gets yanked, and you hear a woman go, hello there, and she starts talking, and it just stops. <laughs> and they were announcing, like, the sports show or something that was coming on next, and they came in too early, and she comes back in and says the whole line after the credits roll. But my version of the movie had the glass break, and you'd hear a woman say hello there, and then mom would get yanked through the window. <laughs> And as a kid, I didn't know what to make of it. I thought it was part of the movie. Later, oh. I realized that it was, you know, somebody at HBO fucked up and, and started. But I cannot see mom get yanked to the window and not hear that voice. Oh, that is so excellent. Like I said, Wes Craven admitted on film and interviews, he's like, I didn't understand the whole idea of a sequel. Like, we killed the character. We're done with the movie. Bob, I don't know what you're getting at here that we need to set up for a sequel. This is dumb. Boy, was I wrong. And, and he's <laughs> man enough to admit it. And in the argument for adding this shit on at the end, it started off with Bob Shea wanting Freddie driving the car. And I think they actually shot that one. Then it led to the whole compromise of, well, let's have the car be a symbol of Freddie, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. But Bob Shea was not going to budge on her being pulled through the window. 
And you got to think at the time, at least like what I get from watching the interviews and stuff that Craven's like, there's not going to be a sequel anyways. It's, it's just another <laughs> shitty movie that I'm doing. Can we move on? Yeah. You can pull the rubber doll through the door. I don't care. I do want to point out that that door is um, blue. And <laughs> Josh, and I had a discussion about this because if you would, if you would have asked either one of us at any point in our life up to a few days ago, the house has a red door, right? <laughs> and it's because it's always depicted as having a red door. And it does in two onward. But the fucking door <laughs> is blue in this one. And we did not realize that ever. And lastly here with the whole thing with, uh, with Craven, not thinking there was going to be anything big to come of this. He even signed away his rights to the characters. The, he created Freddy Krueger. He created the characters in this movie and he didn't think there was going to be anything of it. And just last year, it's been long enough by law that the rights have now reverted back to the original owner or creator being the Craven estate. So with oh. all the shit that happens in the, we're going to reboot this, we're going to do that. Well, guess who they have to get permission from to do it now, unless they choose to sell. So that's kind of neat throughout this series. I know we don't always do that, but I think we will on this one. Cause it's an interesting thing to go along. This one was shot for 1.8 million made 25 million, according to most box office places. And there's skewed numbers that I see from some places trying to cite that it's twice that worldwide, but more often than not, I keep finding 1.8 and 25. And there's things that get brought up about the sequels referencing how much the first movie made. So I'm sticking with 25, not the 50, 57 that pops up in places, but all in all, I covered a lot of it going through the movie. There's a lot of bad stuff in the movie as far as execution. There's so much originality and amazingness in it, though, that I don't think I don't think even Bob Shea knew what was happening at the time. All he was thinking was horror franchises, sequels. This is how it works. That's all he was thinking, especially with slashers at this point in the 80s, like the the make a cheap slasher movie and it becoming a series of cheap sequels had already been established and a yep. thing. And this was the first slasher movie. I really feel like, and I said this in the slasher series, right? Like at the very beginning <laughs> of the podcast that this is the first one that like went out there, like supernatural in the original right out the gate. And it wasn't just some body going around, you know, killing co-eds, right? Like it, yep. it did something different. It dared to be different. And it fucking worked. <laughs> yeah. And, and an amazing thing. And I'll tell you what, something that I read right before we went on that I meant to bring up earlier in the fucking thing, David Warner being brought up so many times that he would originally was supposed to play Freddy Krueger and then backed out due to a scheduling issue. Now on uh, never sleep again, David Miller goes on this whole thing about how he was originally going to be Freddy because of the whole West wants an older guy, blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. There is a book that came out after Never Sleep Again called Never Sleep Again, The Nightmare on Elm Street Legacy. But it's a volume. It's like a volume one that the book is only about the production of the first movie. And it's all new yeah. interviews and all this other shit. And they're inter- they interview David Warner. They interview uh, Bob Shea. And they interview Wes Craven about this specifically. And they all say, we don't know where this guy got this shit. He was never involved with the project at all. <laughs> and that just blows my mind. And I'm so mad that I haven't been able to read the book in time to do this because it's not anywhere as an audiobook. And right now, as of this morning, there are two copies on eBay. One is $105 and the other one is $800 because it's signed. That is crazy that you can't get the book and it's out of print. Is there not a uh, digital copy? Nope. 
I now oh, they never they never released it as a as a EPUB or anything. Nope. And that really, really sucks because I was even going to borrow the wife's Kindle if I had to, to read this shit. (laughs) But it just goes to show that there's a lot of stuff that us and other people quote from interviews and whatnot all the damn time where the people answer and the questions that were there aren't even correct sometimes. So that's our errors and omissions clause. And uh, I just think it's neat that it's one of those things like the crow that so many stories have been told like the pizza face thing. <laughs> that you, right, right. And then you find out it's true or you find out something's not true. And it's because these were pre-internet era yep. interviews that we were reading or watching and whatnot. And it, you know, nowadays you can, you can fact check things more. Now, what is true is this movie made a huge fucking return on investment for uh, New Line Cinema. And what does a production house have to do once they've made money on something with a cliffhanger ending? They go right on into a fucking sequel. Let's face it, baby. These days, you gotta have a sequel. And just like so many slasher franchises in the 80s, there's not a whole lot of a backstory going from one film to the other. They just wanted to make money, so they just made a second one as quick as they could, right? Yeah. And that's how, in 1985, we got A Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy's Revenge. And and real quick, I'm just going to dive into the cast and crew here. The film was directed by Jack Shoulder, who had made Alone in the Dark before this. And the only other things I saw that he had made after this that I knew was the Generation X made for TV movie, which was supposed to be like an X-Men kind of spinoff thing in the 90s. And the made for TV, The Omen, right? So he did those and he made a film called Arachnid that appeared to be a horror movie, but I never fucking heard of it. Huh. Me neither. But on my Blu-ray docu-series, he was talking about being on on the set when Wes was shooting the first one, like in the, you know, watching the gimbal scene with Tina and Wes in there and stuff. So he had to have had some affiliation with Bob Shea and whatnot. Maybe Alone in the Dark was a New Line Cinema flick. We'll have to see down the road. (laughs) On a future episode, you have to tune in. The film was written by David Chaskin. And this was his first film. So I didn't even see TV writing credits before this. So I don't know how you got this as your first job. Huh? Somebody knew somebody, right? That's like all I can think. Because it was a successful horror movie and they're trying to spawn a franchise. Yeah, they didn't have a West, but would you really want to get like a new guy? I think they just went with the first full fucking script they got and said, that's it. Let's go. Let's strike while the iron's hot in all seriousness. Yeah. And... He didn't write a whole lot of stuff, but he did go on to write The Curse with Will Wheaton and I, Madman. So he did a couple other genre flicks. Hmm. And with the cast, we have Robert England returning as Freddy. We almost didn't have that. I'll go into that in a minute. We have Mark Patton as Jesse. Man, he's got a cool name. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> I might be a little biased. But apparently they had seen him in a, in a movie called Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean, which is his first film. And they liked him. And they were kind of hoping to set him up as like the next Tom Cruise. And he took a, a acting hiatus. And so we'll get into that later. <laughs> yeah, he did. But he he's jumped back into it more recently. And he did Family Possessions and Amityville Toolbox, which I haven't seen either of them. But I just thought it was worth mentioning. Huh. I've heard of Amityville Toolbox. Yeah, I mean, it, it came out in 2017, I think, if I remember correctly. I'm going off of, uh, you know, a week or two old memory of writing these notes, but <laughs> I'm pretty sure both of the films were fairly recent. Lisa Weber is portrayed by Kim Myers in the film, and she has done 
lots of fucking TV. Just a ridiculous amount of TV credits. The show that jumped out the most to me was the show The Pretender. I used to watch that a lot back in the day, and, and she was The Pretender's mom in it. So she like was in there for pretty much the whole run of the show. And she was in Hellraiser 4, which... I'm going to have to watch that again with her in mind because I don't remember her being in that, but I've only seen most of the Hellraiser movies one time. Huh. Maybe, maybe you just thought it was Meryl Streep. There's a chance I thought it was Meryl Streep because <laughs> she has a striking resemblance to Meryl Streep. We also have Robert Rustler in the film as Ron Grady, who will be called Grady for most of the rest of the movie. And honestly, weird science. That is what always jumps out to me is weird science. And he actually went to the audition of this film from the last day of filming weird science and Robert Downey Jr. brought him. Holy shit. I did not realize that was him until you just said it. Oh, really? <laughs> really? Now I can't unsee it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. And he literally drove from filming one movie to try out for the other one. And apparently he had a huge run on Babylon 5, which I never watched, but that's definitely genre. And then Thrashing. I remember watching that movie like when I was younger. That was like a USA Up All Night. Do you remember that movie? It had Josh Brolin in it, and there were like the skateboard gangs. They were like longboarders, and they were like at war. No. I don't remember a whole lot of the movie, but it, it was starring Josh Brolin, and then and Robert Russell was in it as well. But I remember Gleam in the Cube, but holy shit, I'm going to have to check this out. <laughs> I don't remember if it's good. I don't remember much about it. I don't even remember him being in the movie. It's just when I saw that, I was like, oh, shit, I remember that movie. <laughs> but uh, we're about done with the cast here. We we also have Marshall Bell in the movie as Coach Snyder. And I always think of him from Starship Troopers. Holy shit, again, I didn't realize this. <laughs> <laughs> and he's also in Total Recall. But Starship Troopers, he always stands out to me in that movie. Oh, my. I feel like a complete idiot right now. <laughs> He was also in a bunch of shit. That's the thing. Everybody in this movie, with the exception of Mark Patton, has been in a lot of shit. <laughs> and I couldn't leave out Clue Gulliger as Mr. Walsh because we know him from both Return of the Living Dead and more recently The Feast, which we've covered on the podcast. Yep. He was actually in all the feasts. Oh, was he? I still haven't gone back and watched any of them besides the first one. I'm saving it for when we cover the franchise. No, just don't. <laughs> <laughs> And the special effects, I just wanted to dip my toes into this. Mark Showstrom. Yes. I don't know if he was in charge, but he did a lot of the special effects in this movie. He did a lot of the Night Real Elm Street movies going forward, possibly all of them. I can't remember. We've covered him before for doing Evil Dead 2, right? Because he was um, K&B's boss, right? Before they were K&B. Yep. Some of the Poltergeist movies, the Phantasm movies, lots of fucking shit. The thing is, if you look at the special effects team and the makeup team for this movie... They've all done like heavy hitters. Yes. I just wanted to mention a couple of them. Bart Mixon, just a ridiculous amount of shit. Just look him up. Like he's still working. He does like the Avengers movies and shit for Marvel and Disney. Like he, he's still doing like big time shit with that. Kevin Yeager did the, um, the Freddy makeup because they couldn't get the first guy back and there was no reference pictures. There was like two of them. So he had to like recreate Freddy. Cause normally, you know, you'll have a whole book of reference pictures, how they made it different angles, this and that. So somebody can go and do it later. And he didn't have that. So he had to go off just a couple of pictures and then he just studied books on burn victims to design Freddy's makeup. So it's a little different, but it wasn't because of a creative choice. It was because the guy didn't have anything to go off of. Yeah. And that, I've seen and heard people bitch about the makeup in this movie. And I like the, the, there is a, there's an evolution of Freddie's makeup throughout all of the films. And I like this one, you know, the yeah. first, the first one was 
overdo it because it's going to be lit dark. And there's some shots with it in the first one where it's cheesy. And starting with this movie, it looks good in bright light because the fucking pool scene, they had to. <laughs> and we'll get to that. <laughs> Unlike most movies, I don't have a lot of behind the scenes stuff I want to go into before the film. Most of it I'm going to do as we go. And then I have a, a little blurb at the end I'd like to do. But a couple things I want to point out just because I, I couldn't really fit it in. Robert England was not Freddie at first in this movie. He and his agent had realized that he was like a character and like how much he put into it. So they asked for a lot more money than he got paid on the first one. And Bob Shea didn't want to fucking pay it. So he's like, oh, we'll recast it. And they actually shot part of the movie with a different guy playing Freddie. And they're like, oh, this is fucking bad. Like, <laughs> this is really bad. Like, we have to have Robert England back. So they, they, you know, I don't know if they begged, but they called Robert England back and they had to fucking reshoot every scene that had Freddie in it. Oh, damn. Because the guy, I mean, it's like the Nick Castle walk for the shape, right? Like <laughs> nobody's ever been able to redo it. It's just Bob Shad, the goddamn common sense to realize that immediately at fucking unfuck his situation. So this was like the Wilbur walk. <laughs> <laughs> Some people say I got a Wilbur walk and they just like it. Oh my God. Grandpa Wilbur. Oh Lord. <laughs> This episode is so meta. We've referenced so many other episodes this time. We can't help it. We're almost 50 episodes old, so there's a lot to go back on. But like Josh said earlier, Wes Craven refused to work on this film because he never wanted to or intended to have a, a sequel, let alone a franchise. And he really wanted his movie to have a happy ending, which that is one of the few things I will disagree with him on. I, I don't always like the wrapped with the bow horror movie ending. Sometimes I do, but I don't know. And that one, it, it just seems fitting that it, it had an extra layer. I just don't know who was sleeping when, when that happened, but <laughs> exactly. Another problem he had with it. He didn't like the idea of Freddie manipulating the protagonist into being a murderer. It's one of the few other things I'll disagree with Wes on. I kind of like that Freddie wasn't at full power and he was having to get somebody to help him bring fear back, right? To give him his power back. I like that different angle. I don't know how much they actually decided for that to be the case. I don't know how many happy accidents happened lore-wise with this movie. <laughs> but this is a very lore-filled movie with a couple sidesteps or mishaps that I'll cover as we get to that I feel like gets greatly over-exaggerated. But... All in all, this is a pretty faithful sequel, I feel like, as far as horror films go. Yeah. I just wanted to say real quick that I, I meant to mention in the first one where, the to me, the idea is left open that was Heather dreaming the entire time. I meant um, to bring that up, too. It was in my notes and everything. <laughs> because of the whole punching in and out of the dream world versus the real world. But regardless, it it doesn't matter where we left off because of where we're going to go in the sequel. But we open up with a school bus driving through the burbs and we get a really cool looking like red slash like Freddy's claws that, that spells out a nightmare on Elm street. And then we get a terrible like turquoise Freddy's revenge stamp appeared. That's in like the RoboCop font. Don't know what the fuck they were thinking there, but that's what happens. A bad made for TV movie. Fucking <laughs> Yes. It's so bad. When I, when I was watching it, I was like, do I have the right disc? <laughs> exactly. I was like, what version am I watching right now? Oh, anyways, we can see that the school bus is being driven by Robert England himself. And he's dropping kids off at their homes until we're down to just two girls and Jesse, who we can see as an outsider and uncomfortable. Like his hair is slicked down. He's like kind of pale and has like Depeche mode makeup on in a way. <laughs> 
He looks bothered. The girls are making fun of him. He can't get the window open. And the bus skips one of the stops and just fucking goes trekking off road through the desert, which is in Ohio, apparently. And <laughs> Good show. <laughs> and we can see that Freddie is now driving the bus and he's hauling ass and he ends up getting some air flying through the desert. And he randomly stops in this area where he, where he crash lands, basically. And the sand starts to cave in around the bus and the sky turns red. And there's fucking the quickening from the Highlander striking <laughs> everywhere. And they're basically left teetering on a column of rock, right? Like with a bottomless pit under them. And Freddie gets up from the driver's seat and comes for the three kids who are treating to the back. And I love the scene because the bus starts to lean back and Freddie's like fucking with the weight distribution and shit. And it's so creepy watching the bus rock back and forth. And he finally makes it to the kids and he slashes at them. And then we cut to a mom cutting a tomato right on a cutting board <laughs> with a blood curdling scream coming from somewhere else in the house. Right. It's Jesse. We find out and his family's very concerned for him. Mommy, why can't Jesse wake up like everybody else? Oh, honey, he's all right. I got this feeling watching the opening scene because I hadn't seen this movie in a while and I actually saw someone else mention the same thought somewhere and I don't remember where it was. It could have been one of the many documentaries I've watched recently. But I think the opening scene is supposed to be a metaphor that Freddie's about to take Jesse for a ride. Hey. Right? Like that young Jesse, Jesse being me, this is going to get really confusing. But <laughs> Myself, as a teenager, I didn't think that. But watching this as an adult, I definitely got that vibe from it. And this is our movie setup, right? Like, Freddy's here to, to haunt this kid and take him for a ride. And I want to point out that I love how Freddy's nightmare powers have gone to 11 in this movie. Like, they're way stronger. There's a bigger budget, right? They, they knew that it was loved. And the progression of him, like, doing fucked up shit and nightmares, like, he's not just cutting off digits. Like, he's altering the world and shit now. Yeah. It's pretty badass. Absolutely. But we see Jesse in his bed, sweaty from an obvious nightmare, and we can see that he looks more normal outside of his dreams. Like, he actually kind of looks like he might be the popular kid. He's got the cool, you know, fucking styled hair. He doesn't look as, as much of an emo kid like he did in the bus, right? So, obviously, he's more insecure in his dreams. Yeah. But we can see that his room is covered in U-Haul boxes, so we must know that his family just moved in, right? Downstairs that we can see that his dad, Clue Gulliger, really wants him to unpack all the boxes in his room, and he does not give a shit how hot Jesse's room is. Some might say it's piping hot, like uh, boiler room pipes, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Dad jokes for days. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways... Jesse's sister really wants her Fu Man Chew's fingernails out of the cereal box. <laughs> I want a box and that cereal so bad. <laughs> I know, I know. I'm surprised nobody's released like a novelty one. And and she gets the claws out and puts them on and starts waving them. And we can see like that Jesse is creeped out by these claws, right? But as Jesse's getting creeped out, he's basically saved by the bell as... Lisa shows up to the house so that they can ride to school together. And upon first viewing, most people feel like they were just introduced to the final girl in the scene, right? When you see Lisa show up. Yeah. And that's not the case in this movie. And as a kid, I thought it was really cool. Like I had seen so many slasher and horror movies by this point in time that I thought it was neat that it was a dude being haunted and hunted down by the slasher and having to battle the slasher then, right? Because the final girl thing, I didn't know it was a trope. I was a kid, but like it was neat to see 
as a horror fan that, hey, I can be haunted by this shit and win too, right? Uh, and, okay. and that's how I perceived it as a kid, you know? And his name was Jesse, right? So, <laughs> Yeah, I never saw this one as a kid. I didn't see this one until I got the box set. This was another one we had on a VHS tape. Okay. I would say the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise was the only franchise that I had seen all the way through as a kid. Gotcha. Like even the Halloweens, I didn't start seeing some of them until I was older. Okay. But for some reason, we had all the Nightmare on Elm Streets. I had Jesus tapes. <laughs> you did have Jesus tapes. Lots of them. Uh, we'll talk about that in the next episode. <laughs> but at school for the day, we can see that it's P class or something. And they're playing baseball and Jesse's checking out Lisa until he's pegged in the head by a pop fly from Grady and Grady lets him know that it was a very heads up play. Right. And <laughs> the, <laughs> Grady's got great puns in this movie oh. and Grady ends up getting caught in a pickle on the next play between Jesse and, and another guy. And they're throwing the ball back and forth. And he decides to charge the mound on Jesse and Jesse tags him and he's like, very heads up play. And then he's pants and his bare ass is, you know, out in the fucking world to see. And they're like bare ass wrestling in the grass, right? Like the best way I can explain that. And the the girls are off to the side all like, that's hot. (laughs) Yeah. Cause Lisa's friends like nice ass or whatever, (laughs) but, um, they get busted by coach Schneider who we can see is a hard ass. And he basically makes him do push-ups for hours, right? I don't know how long it's supposed to be, but it seems like for fucking ever. And during the push-ups, Grady and Jesse start to chat and become friends a bit. And we find out that Schneider likes to cruise gay S&M joints downtown and likes pretty boys like Jesse. Um, Foreshadowing. <laughs> Anyways, in the locker room, we find out from Grady that Jesse moved into the house where a crazy girl lived and watched her boyfriend get hacked up across the street. And the mom committed suicide in her bedroom. And if Jesse driving away that morning from the house didn't give it away, you can now confirm that Jesse lives in Nancy's old house. 1428 Elm Street. Yeah. That night, we see Jesse wake up in bed and go to get some water in the kitchen. And outside, he sees someone walk by in his yard, who we know to be Freddy. And he follows them around outside and peeks to the basement window where he can see Freddy casually feeding body parts into the fire like it's kindling. <laughs> It's so fucked up. He's like, oh, here's an orb. And he just like throws it in there. Yeah, it's so out of place. But it's fucked. And that's what we need. We need something that's fucked. But Jesse runs back into the house and he peeks down in the basement from the stairs where he sees Freddy coming up. So he runs and calls for his dad. But he's greeted by teleporting Freddy instead. Freddie gently caresses Jesse on his face and lets him know that they have special work to do together. Jesse has the body and Freddie has the brains and he takes his hat off and rips the skin off a skull and you can see his brain throbbing, which looks great, but makes no sense because there's no fucking skull there for some reason. He didn't remove a skull plate or anything. It's just <laughs> skin, brain. I never thought about it that way. <laughs> Freddie's got some big brain plays there. You know what? But, I, in that shot, you know what I really thought about? I was like, thank, what? thank God it's not the wobbly skull cap like it is when he comes out from the blanket in the first one. <laughs> I forgot about the fucking skull. Oh, physiology. (laughs) Will that be anatomy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll go with that. Anatomy. (laughs) (laughs) But then we get another one of those amazing final girl screams out of Jesse's body as he wakes up in bed from his nightmare. I'm just going to say right here, this movie jumps from day to night a lot, and I'm going to try to keep it coherent. (laughs) But the next day in science class, we can see that Jesse has a creepy science teacher who's really into cow hearts. Yeah. (laughs) 
Grady can see that Jesse's asleep in class. Obviously, from the nightmares he's been having, he's not getting a lot of sleep. And we then see a snake start to crawl around Jesse, around his neck, kind of like the sheet with Rod in the first one. And this wakes Jesse up. And you think it's a dream and Freddy fucking with him until you realize that it was a class pet that Grady had snuck out and put on Jesse as a prank. And Jesse realizes this and even gives him a smirk and flips in the bird because he thought the joke was hilarious himself, right? Yeah. The teacher did not, however. <laughs> but that night, Jesse calls Lisa to go out with her, and he is told by his dad that he can't go out of the fucking house to go and pack his room. So Jesse breaks out his favorite 80s mixtape with his pop hit on it and breaks out into a fabulous dance. This dance includes booty bumping the drawer shut on his dresser and him beating off some weird stick thing on his bed till it fucking pops a ball out the end right as Lisa and his mom walk in the room. Oh. He looks super cool right now. Yeah, I was very upset when this exact same thing happened to me. What? Huh? Is it story time? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> for a later date. <laughs> yeah. If you'd like for us to start a Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> Josh's erotic stories. <laughs> Anyways. Lisa offers to help him unpack, and he finally gets it done, right? However, when they're finishing up the room, she finds a diary on the top shelf hidden in the closet, and we find out that the diary belonged to Nancy, and we find out that this is five years after the original, and they basically think they're reading like an erotic part of the diary about Nancy watching Glenn until it turns dark with Freddie clawing at her. Right. Yeah. And Jesse sees similarities in her diary entry with the steel claws in the boiler room to the to the nightmares he's been having. And he thinks there might be more to his dreams. Right. And he lets Lisa know what Grady said about the family before him in the house. Right. Exactly. I just want to point out that. I had no fucking clue this movie took place five years after the original until recently. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, it came out a year later, but I was thinking it had been a year. And I guess that makes more sense that nobody would know the story about what happened. Cause if they're supposed to be like 16 year olds or whatever, right. Yeah. That they wouldn't know when they were 12 or 11, right, right. 11 or whatever. Cause I'm assuming because Lisa's supposed to be a rich kid and she doesn't have her own car. She has to ride with Jesse, which makes me think she's like 15 and he's 16. Right. Okay. I'm okay with this. I think that's how driver licenses and permits and shit work back then. Uh, so this, for us. This is the, yeah. Ohio, yeah, yeah, but this is the Ohio with palm trees. So who knows? <laughs> and a desert and a desert. <laughs> Can't forget the desert. It's key in this film, <laughs> but we cut to Jesse sleeping again and waking up from a dream that we can only assume is a nightmare to find everything in his room is melted. His lamp we saw earlier was like a baseball helmet and it's completely fucking melted when he, when he reaches to turn it on. And that scene always stuck with me as a kid. And there's like a record melting and it looks badass. The, everything melting in the room just looks fucking fantastic. And like yeah. I said, Freddy's dream powers are really cool in this movie. <laughs> so basically we're getting a dream and a dream, I guess at this point. And Jesse heads down to the basement to see what's going on. And he looks into the furnace and he pulls out Freddie's glove. And if you think this is the same furnace where Marge hit it, right? So it would, it could possibly still be there. Right. Yeah. And the fire randomly lights up in the furnace, which jump scares Jesse and Freddie appears and tells him to try it on for size. And he asks him to kill for him. Right. And 
I think that Freddie needs for Jesse to believe in him and to be scared and to inflict Freddie fear on other people so that he can get like his, his power back that Nancy took from him. That's what I took at all this. I do as well, but I don't know how much of that I'm pulling from Freddie versus Jason in all seriousness. Yeah, maybe. I just seem to remember having these thoughts and vibes in the nineties as well. So, okay. but I, I'd have to time travel and ask myself if I could time travel, there's, Cooler shit I did. <laughs> I would fucking hope so. <laughs> but obviously this freaks Jesse out and he runs and trips and falls on the floor and, and the glove bounces and he can see it still sitting there. And I'm assuming he was like sleepwalking. Yeah. Right. And that's how he saw Freddie and all this happened. And then he tripped and fell and woke up and it's like, oh shit, the glove's still here. So that could be like a, he brought it out of the dream or it could have still been in the furnace. It could go either way. I don't need it spoon fed or answered for me. It makes sense either way. Jesse got a glove. Jesse's got a glove. (laughs) (laughs) But the next day at school, Jesse's telling Lisa about his sleepwalking incident. Well, there we go. (laughs) (laughs) Mystery solved. (laughs) And she asked to borrow the diary from him. And throughout the day, we see Grady and Jesse start to bond a little bit more. And then they get in trouble for shit talking coach Schneider, not realizing he's standing behind him. Right. So back at the house, we can see the family sweating their ass off because the air is fucked and the thermostat says it's 96 degrees in the house. And Jesse goes to check on the freaking out birds until they fly out into the room and swarm the dad and pops battles them with a broom until they burst into flames. Well, you got, in all fairness, you got the one that they find dead in the cage. It's just the one that flies around and bursts into flames. And this is the part where everyone who took the first movie seriously walked out of the theater. (laughs) I want to be clear here by birds. I mean, a bird on a fucking string attached to a pole being slung around the room in a circle. And it looks so bad and it's hilarious. And you see it. I don't know if this is the actual cut, but clue actually got cut by the bird under his eye in real life and like damaged his vision. Oh, you wow. see the dad get scratched. I don't know if that's the same scene. This movie is mostly great and the special effects are mostly great, but there's a couple shit scenes in the film and this is one of them. And I want to point out that the birds were supposed to be a warning that Freddie was coming, like taking a bird into a coal mine to give you the warning when you're about to die. Oh, uh. here's something interesting. That phrase that's canary in a coal mine. But these are parakeets. Have you heard or read the story of Freddy Krueger, the parakeet? I <laughs> shit you not. I have no fucking clue you're talking about. Blow my mind. Come it's on, a bring par- it on. It is a parakeet that was named Freddy Krueger that got like shot and burned because it like belonged to a drug dealer or like a mob boss or something. And there was a hit and the bird got shot and burnt and released and made its way home and won't die. And the bird's name is Freddy Krueger. And it's a fucking green parakeet, just like in fucking Nightmare 2. Huh. You have to look up the story and read it, man. It sounds insane. <laughs> I will. But after this clusterfuck with the burning birds, we see mom, dad, and Jesse in the kitchen, and the dad thinks he's figured out the whole thing. The mom was feeding the birds cheap-ass food, and it gave them bird rabies. You mean animals just don't explode into flames for no reason? Do they? That's right. Was this Wuhan bird seed? <laughs> Holy shit. He then blames the whole thing on Jesse and says he set it up because that makes sense because obviously he fed the birds some goddamn cherry bombs, right? <laughs> If you've not sensed a pattern yet, you soon will. 
<laughs> because we're going to cut to Jesse waking up in his bed sweaty and going down to the kitchen to get some water again until the quickening strikes through the window and hits the dishes next to him. Oh, yeah. That, that, that looks bad. <laughs> it's the same lightning from the beginning around the school bus. Ah. We then randomly see Jesse wandering the streets barefoot in a storm to a gay bar with a very leathered out Bob Shea as the bartender, right? Yes. He wanted to be the bus driver, I think, and they didn't let him do it for some reason. But I saw in an interview, Bob telling a story about they gave him the address to like an S&M leather shop to go to to buy the outfit to pick out for the scene. And he had his daughters with him. Oh, nice. And the guy, and they're like looking around at like all the stuff in the shop. And the, the shop guy was like, yeah, you're going to have to make the kids wait outside. They can't be in here for this. <laughs> oh, that opens up a lot, a long line of questioning for that shopkeep. <laughs> <laughs> but Jesse's then surprised by a very leathered out coach Schneider who takes him to the school to run laps around in the gym and then makes him hit the shower afterwards. Right. So this must be the bar that Grady was talking about that Schneider likes to cruise. Ah. While Jesse's in the shower, Coach Schneider begins to hear odd sounds, and you find out it's like the, I guess you call them the strings on the tennis rackets, like getting taunt and popping, which I think looks and sounds really cool. Yeah. And then he's assaulted by his own balls. (laughs) There's basketballs. Footballs, tennis balls, you name it, balls flying all across the room. Those balls. The coach is then tied up by some jump ropes that he's prepping for class the next day and then dragged down the hallway into the shower where he is stripped naked and his ass is whipped constantly by a towel until the room fills with steam and Freddie appears out of the steam, slicing the coach to death. As the steam clears from the room, Jesse sees that he's the one wearing the glove and covered in blood. And his lion's roar of a scream makes an appearance again. That is like definitive fucking scream queen right there. (laughs) Full on. It's so good, man. The reaction of him like looking at the glove and the way the glove closes and he tenses up when he screams like, isn't that what you would do in that situation? I know that's what I would do. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you'd be fucking terrified and scream like that. Cause it's all right there. Like he's not, he's not only realizing that he killed the person he's realizing the Freddy shit's real. I really have the glove. I really did this. Like that is the shriek of, Oh my fucking God. His mannerisms in this film are fucking fantastic. Like he just looks so shocked that his coach is dead. And then the hand just pops up and like the fingers do the little with the knives. And he like jumps and looks shocked by his own hand. He does all of that. Fantastic. In this film. He's a very fucking disturbed, falling apart human being throughout this entire movie. Yeah. But we then see the police bring a naked Jesse home from where they found him wandering the streets. And his dad wants to know what the fuck he's taking and where the fuck did he get it from? <laughs> and Jesse says he's not taking anything. And, and his mom takes him to bed to go to sleep. And the next day we see him leave for school. And as he's going out to his car, we can see that his dad's putting bars. Let's just say back on the windows. Yeah, that works. but Jesse and Lisa roll up to Springwood high to see that it's a crime scene now. And Grady lets Jesse know that Schneider got wasted last night. He must've been working overnight. Holy shit. It was real. Oh, I didn't consider that it could have been a dream. I just always thought that it was real. And that's a weird thing. I'm going to save to get in the end on real versus dreams in this movie and something people get hung up on. But yeah, I never even thought about it from that perspective. Yeah. Yeah. And I meant to say this earlier, 
by school, you know, Josh had the, the list of cool schools from the first movie. This is the Karate Kid school. Cobra Kai, do or die? Exactly. <laughs> Did Cobra Kai just make it into an episode twice? Yes. <laughs> Cobra Kai seasons one and two now streaming on Netflix. <laughs> just want to bring that up. I'm I'm right this time, by the way. <laughs> and season three is coming out by Netflix soon. Is that how all that happened? Yes. Oh, yes. No Netflix sh- continuing it because YouTube's not going to make their own content. I don't think anymore. I think they decided against it. But Cobra Kai was was too good to let die. Okay, I'm okay with this. I'm not okay with having to buy more DVDs. But fuck yeah, go away, COVID. I need this. I need closure. <laughs> for clarification, for for the listeners and I, do you buy DVDs still, or are you buying Blu-rays? Um, it depends. Okay, so if it's on Blu-ray and below my price threshold for new purchase, I'll go ahead and get it. But in all seriousness, the uh, Cobra Kai came in a two-pack DVD with the bandana that is Daniel's bandana on one side. And when you flip it over on the other side, it's the Cobra Kai bandana. And that was not Badass. available with the Blu-ray. Yeah, see, you understand. You buy the DVD if it comes with that. No, I would have bought the Blu-ray and then just ordered a Cobra Kai bandana off the internet. But it's both. On, I can be Daniel and then flip it over and be Johnny and I can fight myself, which, <laughs> which is way better for my wife to walk in on than what happened when I was a kid and making the joke about the Jesse scene. But moving on for clarification for me and the listeners, we're talking about <laughs> Jesse as in myself or Jesse as in Mark Patton, uh, Mark Patton backing that thing up in his bedroom. <laughs> okay. Okay. As long as we're clear, <laughs> moving on. But we then quickly cut to that night and Jesse waking up sweaty again with the glove moving on its own in the drawer. Kind of evil deadish. <laughs> very but evil deadish. Hear, <laughs> yes. But we hear Freddie once again ask Jesse to kill for him. And then Jesse goes to his sister's room to find her in the famous white schoolgirl outfit, jump roping and doing the Freddie lullaby. So the next morning, we see Jesse confront his father about what happened in the house, and we find out that the mom didn't know about any of it. And Pop says that the house is absolutely fine and there's nothing wrong with it. And then the toaster burst into flames while being unplugged. This is all perfectly normal. Yeah, if you're in the fucking whatever his name is, Gremlin's house, where every appliance breaks. (laughs) Oh, my God. But later that day, we see Lisa take Jesse to an old industrial plant and shows him the boiler room. And she says that from her research that Fred Krueger worked there and he brought 20 kids there and killed them. And this fucking industrial complex looks badass in the shots and the cinematography is awesome. This is not a set. They found this site. Yeah. And this is where the mythos got fucked in my head a little bit because I was thinking he was the janitor at the school and he took him to the boiler room where Tina and Nancy would go. But if you think about when they're getting chased on their dreams in the original movie through the boiler room, it looks like a giant complex, not a boiler room for a school. Yeah. So I'm assuming it was this place. It's just the school's part of their like sleepwalking little bit or something, right? Exactly. But Lisa wants to know if Jesse can feel anything, like if he has a bond with Freddy Krueger or something, right? Like she's she's going a little bit supernatural in this because of the weird connections between Nancy and Jesse and, and, and the dreams he's having and what he thinks he's done. She thinks they might have a bond, right? Jesse sees a strange cabinet out in the open and he seems attracted to it. So him and Lisa walk up to it. And Jesse opens the cabinet only to find that it's just rats nesting in there. There's nothing crazy. 
That night, we get a slasher POV shot wandering through the house into the little sister's room. And we hear Freddie's voice say, wake up, little girl, only to see that it's a sweaty Jesse with the glove on. Time to start habitually popping no-dos, right? Because <laughs> yes. this shit's getting real. Absolutely. And that's actually when he was going in there to kill her sister. I kind of jumped the gun earlier. Yeah. I think he was just fucking dreaming earlier and seeing the ghost girls and it looked like his sister. Yeah. But the next morning, his mom lets him know that he's looking a lot better. And it must be from all those vitamins he's been taking, right? Like to just to fix everything up. Yeah. Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> On the way to school, Jesse lets Lisa know that his mom thinks he's going crazy and his dad thinks he's on drugs and he thinks that they might be right. Well, about the crazy part anyways. <laughs> and all of Jesse's friends are worried about him at lunch and Grady's even trying to talk him into hanging out that night, getting out of the house, getting some pizza, going to the movies, just trying to cheer him up over the weekend. But he says all of this while he's shoveling food into his mouth and it's fucking hilarious. And Jesse gets into it with Lisa a bit. And then Grady tries to crack a joke until Jesse blows up on him and he leaves. You want to shut up? Fine. I'll shut up. No problem. See around, buddy. Grady just doesn't want to die. <laughs> Are you saying he knows what's going on? <laughs> he knows what's going on, man. And honestly, at this point, at this point, we arrive at both the third act of the film and Lisa's pool party that we've been hearing about the whole movie. <laughs> We can see that Jesse's still distraught at the party, and he says, fuck it, and goes in the pool house to change out of a swimsuit and leave. And Lisa comes in and confronts him and lets him know that she's not going to let anything happen to him. And at this point, we have her set up as the hero of the film looking after the final girl, right, in a way. Yeah. Almost like Glenn to Nancy, if you didn't know what was going to happen to Glenn, right? Um, it's kind of a role reversal, right? The way that these two are acting with him being the final girl and her being the partner that that's wanting to save the day right and they begin to make out in the pool house and we can see where lisa's mom has seduced the dad away so that the party can get fun for the kids right like this was all set up so he wouldn't dj and shit and we cue the new wave music and they pop out the bls yeah when it gets to this scene do you start hearing that song from fast times at ridgemont high going in your head <laughs> which song She's going to be somebody's only light going <laughs> to no, shine tonight. but I might from now on. <laughs> well, we cut back to the pool house, and we can see that Jesse is making his move until a giant Freddy tongue pops out of his mouth to play. Jesse notices this, but Lisa does not, so he just gets up and pieces the fuck out. Jesse randomly shows up in Grady's room and lets him know that he needs to stay there tonight, and he needs his help. He tells him the whole thing about his nightmares, about him thinking that he killed Snyder, and that something inside him wants his body and Grady lets him know that he left that something in the cabana and she's waiting there for him and he's wanting to sleep with him. It's an odd way to say he wants to crash at his place, right? Um, yeah. Grady agrees to watch over him while he sleeps. When we get a nice throwback as Jesse says, whatever you do, don't go to sleep. And we cut to the party and we see Carrie tell Lisa that she needs to go get her man. Right. And back at Grady's, He's getting sick of watching TV and he decides he's going to pass out. So as soon as he turns the TV off to go to sleep, Jesse immediately wakes up in pain and we watch his Freddy burst out of his body. And it looks fucking awesome. It does. And I'm actually, I, I want to describe the scene to anyone who hasn't seen this film. Cause I've talked to a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street fans in the past couple of weeks that apparently never seen this movie. <laughs> That's cause growing up, we were all told this was the shitty one. Skip it. 
I just, I saw it naturally. Like I saw them in order. Basically it's the only horror franchise I ever actually saw that as a kid, <laughs> like as a grown up, obviously I, I see him in order, but Jesse looks like he's in a lot of pain. Like Mark does this scene so well, like he's having stomach problems and the rest of his body's hurting. And then we see Freddie's claws bust out of his fingertips. Right. And then we see his arms start to swell and bust open where you would expect to see veins, blood, muscular system, but you're actually seeing Freddie sweater right under the skin. Nope. And we can see the, the face of Freddie pushing out of his gut, kind of like the spandex wall earlier. And the claw goes and cuts the fucking stomach open and Freddie's head and shoulders bust out of his stomach. And we can see Jesse screaming in pain and the voice turns into Freddie's voice and we can see an eyeball in the mouth peeking. And that might've actually been before he, he busted out of the stomach. I might've said it out of order. And this is just fucking done really well. And I actually rank this up there with the American werewolf in London transformation. Oh, wow. I think it's that good in that real looking. And it is neat how they did a lot of it, you know, with the head popping out and the eyeball. They took a bust of Jesse's head that just fucking looked perfect. And somebody whose head was small enough stuck their head in the back from the mold and just looked out the mouth hole. It was all done with practical effects. This would have been really shitty with CGI in more modern times. I think it just looked awesome. But I have one question for you. Okay. Where the fuck did the hat come from? Was Jesse like clenching that shit between his cheeks? Oh, that is out of everything going on in this scene. That's that's the sticking point, huh? <laughs> you sound like me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Freddie like he climbs out of his body and like just drops the Jesse meat suit, and he's like, uh, and Freddie pulls the hat out. Oh, maybe Freddie was clenching the hat in between his cheeks. There you go. Wait, that's what? more more probable. <laughs> But you know what? When this gets the whole Freddie bursting out thing gets revisited later on in uh, Dream Child, and I don't, I don't think the hat is addressed there either. I think it's just there. <laughs> <laughs> I honestly can't wait till we do the Dream Trilogy because I have very fond memories of them, and I, I mix some of the movies together, like some of the scenes and the titles. I even do that, but I remember liking them all dream child, the least, but I, I can't wait to do the whole trilogy. And I hope they're as good as I remember them being. Oh, they're fun. They're so fun. Anyways, Grady is, is quickly killed by Freddie at this point, right? Cause Freddie just fucking goes straight up to Grady, picks him up by his throat, pins him against the wall. While his parents are beating on the door from the other side. And you just see the claws fucking pop out the door by the dad's face and blood run down. Yeah. Those are the Michael Myers claws. <laughs> yeah. They're like fucking refrigerator katana length or whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was Robert Shea's cameo that he wanted, not the school bus driver. Oh, okay. Bob Shea wanted to be the dad beating ah. on the door. And the director was like, come on, man, I need an actor for the scene. I need like somebody to actually be traumatized and trying to get in there to save their son. You're not going to be able to do this one. You can work at the gay bar. Yeah. And that's, that's how that went down. The amount of lines in the uh, gay bar bartender scene is uh, different. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> like non-existent. Exactly. But we cut to a crying Jesse on the floor and he's whole again, right? Like he's covered in blood, but his body's back together for some reason. I'm assuming he saw the, the terror of Freddie ripping out of his body, but it didn't quite go down that way. Cause he is like a demon after all. Um, we see Jesse just fucked up on the floor, upset and Freddie's laughing at him from the mirror, taunting him like shame, shame. And Jesse realized he's the one covered in blood and he has the glove on. So I'm assuming Jesse actually just gutted Grady. Yeah. And Freddie didn't burst out at all. 
Exactly. He then hears the police sirens as the police are coming in and he pieces out through the window, right? It's just like when fucking Rod dives out in the first one. Yeah. Back at the pool party, Lisa's getting ready to go find Jesse and he just randomly shows up at her house covered in blood and crying. And he says that Freddie's inside of him and he wants to take him again and he owns him. She looks like she's starting to think that he's crazy and he's waving his hands around covered in blood and she's looking like, oh my God, he's a fucking murderer. And out at the party, things start to get a bit heated. As the pool turns into a sauna, right? <laughs> the hot dogs start to pop. The BLs start to burst. And we cut back inside. And Lisa shows Jesse the diary and says that Nancy figured out that Freddie fed off of their fear. And she took it away from him and took his power away from him. And she lets Jesse know that he can fight Freddie and take his power away from him. And then Freddie says, fuck this. And decides it's time to pop out again for one of those juicy BLs outside. And... Things start to get hot everywhere. The fish tanks cooking and burst and everything around the party is getting hot. And Jesse collapses on the floor behind a table and Freddie stands up and starts going after Lisa. And they play a game of cat and mouse through the house. And Freddie manages to catch her and bite her on her like ankle, basically, before she escapes his grasp and gets in the kitchen and gets uh, a Michael Myers knife, right? And she asks Jesse to help her. There is no Jesse. I'm Jesse now. This is this is all quote unquote in the real world for anybody who happens to be listening to this who hasn't seen the movie. Yeah, and I have a theory about this I'm about to go into in a minute. Okay. But we can hear Jesse's voice crying through Freddie's body for her to kill him. And he says that he loves her. She tries to stab him with the kitchen knife, but to no avail, it does nothing. It's just in his shoulder and back out, right? And she manages to summon Jesse back up. And Freddie runs away and vanishes, right? His power seems to be taken away and things start to go normal for now. And I want to point out that in the original movie, the way you could kill Freddie is you brought him out into the real world and hurt him, right? Yeah. So this movie's kind of like a fuck the mythos thing. But I'm going to take this a step further in a second. Okay. Just as the calm before the storm settles in, we see the shit hit the fan again and Freddie burst out of the ground outside at the pool party and it looks cool the way he flies up honestly and he starts murdering high school kids at the party the stoner dude tries to calm him down and ask freddie what he wants and <laughs> lets him know that he wants to help him and freddie slashes him and says help yourself fucker it's <laughs> fucking hilarious that's like one of the first like really funny freddie lines you know yeah that's meant to be funny yes freddie then addresses the party and holds his arms out at him and lets him know that they are all his children now and Lisa's dad shows up with a shoddy and tries to shoot Freddy, but Lisa stops him from shooting or, or makes a miss or whatever. And Freddy walks into the bushes and poofs away in the flames. It's cheesy, but it looks cool. All of it looked really cool fucking imagery wise. I am almost wondering if Lisa sees Freddy, but everyone else sees Jesse. Huh. They don't address it, but I was trying to keep an eye on the movie from that perspective because when they're walking around in the kitchen, the way she's talking to him and it's like he's uh like got multiple personalities kicking out and there's kids looking in through the sliding glass door. Yeah. When they're getting into it and I forgot to mention that and they look like disturbed like oh god, they got knives, right? They don't look disturbed like there's a fucking burnt zombie walking around in the room. They're not like running away, oh god, it's a monster. They're like, "Oh god, what are those two doing in there?" Huh, that is interesting. And if you think back to the scene with Grady dying and we realized that Freddie never actually burst out of Jesse's body, Jesse killed Grady and Freddie was taunting him through the mirror the whole time, right? Yeah. So if you think about that, 
and I might be reading into this like way too much and giving the movie more credit than it, than it's due. But I feel like that happened a little bit in the first one too. Like Freddie's not supposed to manipulate the real world and people get mad about that and hung up about that in this film, including Wes Craven. Like he's not supposed to be out at a pool party running around, but I don't know if he actually was. I'm going to have to go back and rewatch the movie. Just thinking about that, because that's, that's been my big hang up. Like everybody else said, and like you said, you know, Wes Craven adamantly like this is you broke all the rules and here's Freddie out in the right. real world. But that's just our reminder that Freddie's controlling Jesse and it's supposed to be Jesse to everyone in those scenes. But we also had Freddie spandex leaning through walls and shit while people couldn't see it. And he made the crucifix fall. Yes, but there was still a representation of the veil. He's on the other side of the wall. He's on the other end of the phone. I, I, I can give a pass on that. But at the same time, if that's the case here, looking at it as it's Jesse and it's just letting us see the evil, I might be able to give that a pass too. But I gotta, I gotta watch it and see if you're right. Is it, is it giving it too much credit, or is that like really what was being toyed with? I've never read that anywhere. But the premise of the movie is and has always been that Freddie was manipulating Jesse. Yeah, and everyone agrees on that. And and just that little nugget of knowledge makes me really think that he's just controlling Jesse and making him fucking go crazy. And Jesse's running around doing all this. And that's another one that I felt that way in the nineties watching this movie. And we didn't have the internet to research shit. I didn't fucking know anything. <laughs> I just thought that it was like a Jesse meat suit being used by Freddie, right? Be my victim. I kept saying that the whole fucking time <laughs> I was watching the movie in my head. And I don't know why. Is it just like, is it the way it says kill for me? Is it the way he says it? Is that exactly? It it? Yep. It puts your brain in the same spot, man. <laughs> but anyways, sorry for the long tangent. We can see that Lisa somehow talked her parents into letting her leave the party <laughs> right after all this happened. Yeah. And she shows up at the industrial plant in Jesse's car, the deadly dinosaur. And that was foreshadowed earlier, I guess, that it was really easy to steal the car. It was kind of a goofy thing to do. But she shows up and starts walking through this industrial complex, through the boiler room. And we see some terrible looking fucking hellhounds with like kid mask on them. And then we see a terrible demon rat attacked by a terrible looking demon cat. And it's just as bad as the bird on the string, maybe even worse. But in an interview, I saw one of the special effects guys say that it was his job to make these creatures for the movie. And he was also working on the movie Aliens and he was in charge of making the xenomorphs and something I had to fucking give. Oh, Interdasting. <laughs> so the guy was making xenomorphs for aliens and uh, he didn't really give a fuck about this Freddy sequel. <laughs> he was working on a funny. real movie. <laughs> aliens is a badass movie. I'm just it saying. Is. <laughs> Can we just cover alien and aliens one day and just leave it at that? Is that allowed? No, because if we go to the third one, that's the first time I can say now in the comic because I actually read that shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> But we see Lisa walk through the facility and she can hear Freddy scratching shit and it's getting closer, just like in the first movie, as she's running around and he keeps fucking with her, making her think her wound is infected, making her think that ants are running all over to, to feast on this wound. And at some point he makes her think that she's fallen off a ledge and she's fallen and she's just sitting there on the balcony holding on a rail. And I really like that Freddy's fucking with her. Right. Yeah. And to me, this is more credence that Freddy is still in the dream world and not in the real world. And that it was Jesse earlier. And this is him fucking with her. Right. Which, but it's kind of weird though. This is the one weird scene because she's not skipping sleep. She's not micro dozing or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. but I don't know. I was, I was going to say this from the end, but 
you can look at it multiple ways. If he is manipulating Jesse to come out into the real world, does that make his powers reach out to the real world now that he's inhabited a body? I don't like if he's if his demon soul is taken over this kid's body. Does he now have the ability to use his dream powers out in the real world? And I think people only have a problem with this because it's never addressed or brought up again. Right. Like he never tries to possess anybody again in a film. Kind of a dream child, but. Yeah. But this this goes back to am I pulling this from Freddy versus Jason? I think the act of possessing uh, Jesse is takes less energy, but the act of Jesse committing the the murders creates the fear. Right. Because that is that is Freddie's fuel. So once that happens, there's enough fear for Freddie to actually do his thing correctly in the dream world. Yeah. But why why does manipulation like gentle manipulation, uh, gentle's a, a bad, subtle manipulation in the dream world seems like it would take way less power than full on possessing someone. So, right. So that almost collapses on itself. Well, I mean, we know that he is possessing Jesse at some times. Like it is not reading into it with the great. Oh, absolutely. Scene. But I'm just saying the the amount of power that takes. He's possessing Schneider when he kills him, right? Like Freddie wasn't actually in the room when he did it. Yeah. So I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of cool stuff in here and this movie got shit on kind of when it came out and, and it just kind of like this mythos didn't get revisited, but I feel like if they would have used it more in the future, people would have been okay with it. But anyways, this is a long tangent we could go on to and we <laughs> probably will at the end. Yeah. But anyways, after Lisa realizes she's not falling, we can see that Freddie's actually there and she tries to plead with Jesse through Freddie to get him to fight it. Right. And she lets Jesse know that she loves him and Freddie starts to bleed out of all the wounds from where she stabbed him earlier because he's like losing power. Yep. And she goes to Freddie and lets Jesse know that she loves him and that Freddie's losing his grip and he just needs to fight it. And then she kisses him. The boiler room starts to burst into flames and the flames run to Freddie and Freddie's called on fire and he becomes even more of a crispy critter. And we see this cool wax melting trick like in Raiders of the Lost Ark and Poltergeist, right? With the, with the fucking wax bus melting. Lisa cries out as all the flames die out. The end. Freddie's defeated. Just kidding. The killer comes back for one last scare. Just kidding again. Jesse burst out of the burnt Freddie cocoon. And he's alive. The power of love from his girlfriend saved him. And we get a happy ending. Yay! No. <laughs> we then cut to the bus rolling up at Jesse's house. And he's walking out. And he has like a cast on and stuff. So you can tell he's actually fucked up like some of this happened to him. And he basically has a new lease on life. And he's happy. And he gets on the bus. And we don't see Grady back and stuff like this. It's just Lisa and Carrie on the bus with him. He's not driving anymore. I don't know why. And they start to joke about the party and how crazy it was. So we know that all this happened. Yeah. And then the bus starts to haul ass. Jesse freaks out and then it stops to pick up a kid. All seems normal. The driver's just a shitty driver. <laughs> and you think all is good until Carrie says that it's all over. And then Freddie's hand bursts out of her fucking chest. Speaking of Xenomorphs. And <laughs> we can see the bus haul ass into the desert and start to sink into a pit credits did you ever see a dream walking i am torn on that that song use there like half of me loves it and half of me hates it i don't know it's kind of like is it halloween too where it's mr sandman yes give me a treat no 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 it's kind of the same vibe right Ooh, which one came first halloween too then it had to have been halloween too. yeah 
So I don't know. It's kind of weird taking like the popular older song and then like manipulating it in a way, but it fits in both cases. Yeah. Oh man. What a flick. All in all, I actually really like this movie. Like I said earlier, I think it was a good sequel. I thought it was very faithful. You do have the weird bits of a manipulating things, which honestly, it's the only nightmare movie where people died, not in dreams. Like people that were not sleeping, were getting murdered in this movie. Yeah. And like I said, that goes on to my theory of Freddie taking Jesse for a ride. And Jesse was actually doing a lot of this. But I just want to say that out of the big three slasher movie part twos and hell, maybe even any 80s slasher part twos that I feel like this was the best one. I feel like I don't want to say best sequel because sequel implies more than the second film. But I feel like this is the best part two I could think of at the time of a slasher movie and maybe continue to think of because i'm not a huge screen two fan to begin with right which is another good <laughs> franchise but I, it was not boring it tried to be different it pretty much stayed true to the original right like keeping robert england i mean it didn't start out that way keeping the same look and including it into the original by having nancy's house be involved without it just throwing nancy back in for no reason with a different actress and stuff and and freddie's powers were slightly different they had a bigger budget they could make more things happen. So the dreams look cooler. And and it was neat to me seeing the powers work in the real world. And who's to say that if Freddie has a host, he can't start to control the real world. <laughs> There's a, uh, okay. I got to go back a little bit before I, before I uh, respond here in a vacuum to use, a, <laughs> use something Jesse uses all the time. I think I put slumber party massacre two just above this in a vacuum. And the reason I say that is because, I think this was rushed because it was. We got a writer with the first thing they wrote or the first script they could get their hands on at least that there uh-huh. was there was no rewrites, there was no massaging. It was get it out while people still like Freddy because they didn't know the monster they had on their hands yet. And uh that shows a lot at the same time that bus scene at the beginning when everything collapses and the sky changes and it's teeter-tottering, that sets mm-hmm. the precedent for knowing you're in Freddy's dream world for the rest of the right. series. To be fair, I think Slumber Party Massacre 2 is the best Slumber Party Massacre movie, and I fucking love that movie, and it's fun. But we even said on the Slumber Party Massacre episode that it, it feels like it was a separate horror movie, and they just slapped the name on it and changed the character's name True. to be the character from the Firestone. So that's what I was saying, though, in continuity and everything. Like, the, like Freddy's... Freddy's Revenge really did like come after a Nightmare on Elm Street proper, yeah. right? Like whereas whereas Slumber Party Massacre Two is a better movie than the first Slumber Party Massacre, it really was not even the same thing. You know what I mean? So yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. This movie was able to keep it in vain of the original while trying something different. And see, that's part of what I was going towards was Bob Shea, and I keep saying Bob Shea instead of New Line because at the time there was like seven employees. Bob Shea did not know what he had with the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Wes Craven didn't know what he had right. with the original Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, this this, this is, I really think Bob Shea said just get it out while, while it's popular and was expecting like a <sighs> Friday the 13th Part 2 level movie. Just get some more money. And by the time the movie comes out, people love Freddy so much that I think that's what got asses in the seats. Yeah. And they didn't, this movie got shit on so much that I don't think they come, they came back for second viewings unless it was just to see Freddy. Yeah. And, and that overshadows the whole thing, but there's so many, like I said, with the dream sequence, there's so much about this movie that really sets up the feel of what's to come. Like at the end of Freddy's dead, the final nightmare, I think 
correct me if I'm wrong, during the credits, it shows snippets from all the previous movies. And every time I watch that movie and I'm watching, because it's, it's not good compared to the other movies, or it's not one of the better ones compared to the other movies is what I should say. It shows scenes from Nightmare on Elm Street 2, and every time I see it, I'm like, which movie's that? I don't remember that. <laughs> and I'm just being honest because there was a lot. It was too rushed. It was just too rushed. Um, there's other things that could be gotten into about it. It, it is interesting, though, because you, you saw the movie after you were a huge fan, and I saw it pretty much like in continuity. Yeah. Like a year or so apart. Like I saw it, not when it came out, but like I saw the first one, and then I pretty much immediately afterwards saw the next one. You know, so it, it was kind of different. It was like, I guess this was the one horror franchise I grew up with in a way because I got to see them all. And I will say Robert and Wes both say they hate this one. And Wes said that there was no unity in the film and it felt like just a bunch of scenes. I feel like that's a little harsh because I, I don't feel like it was just a bunch of scenes. I do feel like it was a completely cohesive story, but it was a baby that he had put to rest and he thought he was done with, you know, with that story. And then somebody else took over after him. Right. And I feel like that made him be a little bit more harsh on the film than he would have been otherwise, you know, Yeah. but all in all, I think it was a pretty solid flick. And it made money. It made more money than the first one. I'm sure a lot of that was because everybody liked Freddy and the original one, like you were saying earlier, and that brought them in. But it made money. It saved New Line Cinema that was going to be in trouble if the movie didn't succeed. And it really set up our franchise. Yeah, but what about the homoerotic undertones? What homoerotic undertones? (laughs) Just kidding. Of course, we can't forget about the gay elephant in the closet. (laughs) Or room. Yeah, yeah, that is a certain stigma that surrounds this movie and in recent years seems to overshadow the movie itself. I'm sure everybody has heard that at this point that this movie is ranked as the gayest horror movie of all time. And it is celebrated that way. And if you've ever seen Never Sleep Again, it was pointed out on that documentary. And I'm going to be honest. When that documentary came out in, what was it, 2010, somewhere around there? Somewhere around And there. I saw the movie, and I said that. I was like, what? Like, I didn't get it at all. I never noticed that growing up. I never noticed it as a teenager watching it. And I saw them say that on the dock, and then I had to immediately rewatch the movie. And then the stuff stood out to me. But I don't know if it would have stuck out as much had they not said it to me. And I agree with Josh. I feel like this movie doesn't get talked about enough as a movie ever since then. I I feel like that overshadows the film. And I wanted to cover the movie as a movie, but this is also part of the movie. Yeah. Mark was a closeted gay actor, right? Because it was the 80s during the AIDS pandemic. A lot of people weren't coming out as gay. And the writer, David Chaskin, was also homosexual or is I'm assuming. And I believe the set dresser was as well. So there's like apparently hidden little props and things in the, in the background that, that make it obvious. And the writer has backtracked several times. Like originally when it came out that this movie had a lot of homoerotic undertones and whatnot, he backtracked and said, Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't put it in there. And then the movie got, you know, ranked as the gayest horror movie of all time and it was celebrated and everybody thought it was cool. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, I was a homosexual writer in the eighties. I snuck that in there so that that everyone could see it. And then you can see other interviews from time where he's like, This movie's a homophobic tale. Like that's what he was saying in the eighties when it first came yeah. out. He's like, Oh, this is about being two guys being homophobic. Like he's backtracked so many times on it that I just think it's insane. I will say on Never Sleep Again, it's really funny when you see the 
the director and like other actors and producers and special effects guys and everybody. And they're getting interviewed and they're like, one of the guys says, we're either all naive or all incredibly latently gay. Right. Because <laughs> they apparently had no clue. And David, I don't know. It's just so weird how much David has, has backtracked on this. He, he said it wasn't there and they said it was homophobia. And then he said it was, it was, Gay subtext on purpose. Apparently, Europe immediately picked up on the subtext and they loved it and made this movie perform very well there. The top gayest horror movie award came from Cracked Magazine, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, <laughs> but all of that coming out basically destroyed Mark's life and his acting career. And he basically retreated to Mexico. Yeah. Right. And, and lived there for decades until never sleep again was made. Right. And they contacted him and he found out like this huge following that the movie had. And then everybody appreciated the subtext and, and he came out to horror cons and he started doing interviews and he started acting again. And I watched a documentary that I didn't know existed until a few days ago called scream queen about him and, and the subtext and undertones of this movie. And if you think about it, like I pointed out scenes on purpose, like the bare naked ass and the, you know, you got this girl wanting in your body and, and all you want to do is stay here and sleep with me and this and that. And, and you see all that and it makes it obvious in hindsight and after the fact, but I don't know. In the eighties, I just saw it as a goofy movie and I didn't really think about it. The dance scene and stuff like that. And Mark had a hard time with the writer and he wanted the writer to apologize to him. And they actually confronted each other and he backpedaled again. The writer did a little bit, but he did say he was sorry. Right. Yeah. When they were doing never sleep again. Yeah. yeah. But what I never see is the director getting blamed for any of this. Like did the director not catch any of this when he was directing the scenes? Apparently Mark had a hard time acting. They said, you're going to have to be a character actor. We thought you're going to be this big macho actor, but that girl scream that you did. Right. And the writer says that he never put Jesse screams like a girl. In the, in the script, right? That's just how Jesse did it. But yeah. the director kept it. Why didn't he do another take? Right? Yeah. Like any of the stuff that happened in the movie, like it's really funny. You know, they're like, we shot the bar scene in a gay bar and the director's like, oh, that was a gay bar. You know, I'm like, how did you not know that? <laughs> and, and I don't know. I feel like he turned a blind eye on it. And that is a part of the story of this movie, but it is not a part of this franchise. And I just didn't want the, the movie to, to get overshadowed by all that. So that's why I saved it for the end. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that the uh, there's a difference between the homosexual subtext undertone, however you want to put it in the film, because it's there, and this whole the the people that carry the torch for oh this entire movie is about the the gay you know the gay character fighting Freddie and Freddie being a representation of him being gay is wrong, and he has to fight off the the gay Freddie. And, and that's the whole point of the movie. That's not the point of the movie. There's just a sprinkling of stuff in there. And like you said, it shouldn't overshadow the movie. Now, the, the documentary on Scream Queen, My Nightmare on Elm Street is absolutely fascinating for anybody that wants, yes. to, wants to go down there. As far as I compare it to what Never Sleep Again did for the Nightmare on Elm Street franchise, as far as the deep dive, um, really tells Mark's story. Scream Queen does at the same level. Yeah, it's a fucking amazing documentary, but it's a bit out of scope for this episode because it's not covering the movie. It's covering Mark, but Mark himself had like a long story and battle with this that is interesting in its own right. Yeah, this movie destroyed his life. I hate to say it that way, but for a time, this movie really did. But it wasn't just the movie. It was different things with the time and all that. And um, 
carrying into the next movie in the franchise and the rest of them, that's irrelevant. So right. that, that's why we're approaching it from that angle as the franchise as a whole. But anyone who wants to go down that side of things, it's a really good documentary to check out. And the last thing I want to say on it, I hate that the subtext and everything overshadows the movie so much that it's almost like this movie isn't referenced or revisited at all in the other ones. It's almost like you go from part one to part three. And it was because like, it seems like this movie, they tried to bury it and just forget about it. Yeah. In the eighties, but it had a lot of cool shit. There was a lot of cool Freddie powers in it. He started being a cocky asshole talking shit and having one liners. I mean, this is his first like real big one liners in the movie, not just the scary ones, but the, the comedic ones. And you know, you're, you're, approaching the idea of him being able to possess somebody's body and manipulate them through their psyche and stuff. It was really cool. And, and they just basically had to sideline the movie. Just kind of, there's eh, the new sequel. Yeah. It was swept under the rug and you went from a Craven movie to kind of a Craven movie when you jumped to part three. But like you said, there, there's so many staples that were set up in this movie. You know, I don't, I don't care about the movie as a whole. If you can say it's bad, good or whatever for the franchise, it, really sets it sets shit in motion that like part one is the idea part two is the path and then we move into the rest of the franchise that takes us down that path and i couldn't agree with you more so that's it for part one of the nightmare on elm street franchise series so you guys are gonna have to tune in on the next episode when we cover the dream trilogy of the franchise never sleep again as usual guys thanks for downloading the show and spreading the word Please do not forget to rate and review us online and please send us comments, questions, and suggestions to our email, sbspodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you could send us a comment via email about what episodes you think are good representations of the show, because we have a big enough library now that it would be nice to put, if you like this episode, check out these on episodes. all. And we would also love it if you could follow our Twitter and Instagram, both at sbspodcast. This might motivate us to use them more. See you guys on the next one. Thanks for listening. You are all my children now.